a world filled with fast-paced living and constant demands on the aging body, it's easy to forget some of the simplest yet most essential elements of our well-being, hydration and nutrients. As you know, when I'm not in the studio recording a podcast or in the gym or out in the scrub hunting, putting rounds downrange, I'm somewhere in the world on a security gig, putting in the hard yards, ending up on TikTok. So legends that get some, keep me advancing forward, Jocko Fuel Supplements. More specifically, I've been smashing the Jocko Hydrate Sachets, which helps me replenish my electrolytes and other critical vitamins while boosting energy and supporting recovery. Also, just like my kids, my appetite for veggies goes as far as hot chips from the kernel. However, every morning I'll mix a scoop of Jocko Greens, Jocko Creatine into water, which helps me supplement my lack of and delivers all the nutrients for better gut health, immune support, cognitive function, and physical performance. And not to mention, tastes bloody good. So head over to www.getsome.com.au and use the code Zero Limits all in caps for a discount. I'll leave you with this for the day. Hard work, clean fuel, stronger, faster, smarter, better. Let's go. It's time for the Zero Limits Podcast, hosted by Australian veterans. Chatting with high-charging humans with hectic stories from around the world. We'll give you the motivation to take on whatever life throws at you and the kick to complete any goal you set your mind to. Let's go. All right, Zero Limits listeners, here we are in the studio. However, it's not my studio, it's my brother's uh, studio here in Brisbane. I'm uh, actually on a job at the moment and had a couple of hours uh, spare to record a podcast, got to keep it going. And so I borrowed his uh, studio. He is a cinematographer, got a really good setup. On today's Zero Limits podcast, I am chatting to a Queensland firefighter. But before he became a firefighter and got really good at sleeping, he spent uh, plenty of time in the Australian Army infantry first and then moved on to ramps down, pants down, those blokes with the weird feathers in the hats. <laughs> <laughs> mate, uh, Luke Smith, how you doing, mate? Welcome to the show. Oh, I'm, uh, no, I'm doing really well. Thanks uh, Thanks for having your show and thanks for that, uh, thanks for that introduction. And, uh, you know, first uh, second class rides, but then a first class walk. So, you know. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you're right. And you get five-man ration, those five-man ration packs, 24-hour ration packs. That's if we're not eating jaffles, mate, or drinking cokes and smoking dairies. <laughs> like tough kid, tough kid. So this is our second attempt of a podcast. We were just trying to record before, but he was at the station and they're still rocking the ADSL too. <laughs> so they, oh, yeah, it's prehistoric internet, but, you know, I'm a Queenslander too, so I didn't want to say bloody Queenslanders. We got to work with what we got. Yeah, no, fair call, fair call, mate. Yeah, again, <laughs> welcome to the show. And uh, what I want to do is just let's start off right from the start. Let's get to know who you are, where you grew up, schooling, and you know what led to you joining the defence force of all things, and especially the infantry. Yeah, sure. Um, so, look, I grew up in a few different places. Um, my mum and my dad separated when I was when I was quite young, so uh, I grew up with mum and and my and my and my nan and my pop pretty much for uh, for the good part, good portion of my, of my life. Uh, so we started. I was born in Sydney. Don't have an awful lot of memories of being down there. Uh, we moved up to Canberra, which is where I started started my school. And but in that time, you know, my dad's family had bought a. Um, I think in the late eighties, they'd bought a a fairly large um, sheep and cattle station up in Burke in, uh, in New South Wales there. So 
so when I wasn't at school, I was up there um, helping out in the farm and, and uh, you know, really starting to get a love of the land and, uh, you know, riding motorbikes, learning how to drive cars, uh, you know, mustering goats for pocket money, going out pig shooting, uh, you know, really starting to to develop my, you know, my love of the outdoors. And uh, it's really, you know, where my, you know, where my, you know, love and of adventure and, and whatnot came through as well as, you know, watching, you know, Steve Irwin was big back there. Yeah. Watching Tucker Man was huge and, you know, and it's, yeah, so watching some of that sort of stuff and, uh, you know, started, uh, you know, perking my interest in, you know, things like ropes and tying knots and all that sort of, uh, and all that sort of stuff. So, so that was up till, so then, yeah, through the mid nineties, obviously there was, uh, there was quite a large drought in, uh, in through New South Wales and central, especially central and northwest New South Wales, which, which crippled a lot of people. And, uh, you know, eventually, uh, all that didn't cripple, cripple, cripple us. It, it definitely hurt us. So come the late nineties, property was sold and, and so we moved. Uh, we then moved from from Canberra um, up to up to Brisbane, where I did my high schooling years, and and did up there. You know, in terms of schooling, I, I definitely wasn't a I definitely wasn't a straight A student. School was just a, you know, it was a distraction until I could until I figured out what I'd do with my life. And and yeah, you know, it was either it was always either you know, initially it was always going to be going back out back out bush and and getting back on the property and, and getting back out to work with cattle and that sort of stuff. That was my initial plan. And obviously some of the property would put a bit of a dent and put a bit of a dent in that sort of plan. So we moved the city. I was still craving that adventure that I was missing from out, out West and, and, uh, so I ended up joining, joining army cadets, which is, which is ultimately what started driving my interest, uh, my interest in the military. So that's definitely where the peak of that interest came from along with my grandfather who, who had served in the, in the air force and served up in New Guinea and, and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it's essentially, it's essentially where I, uh, where I got my interest from, but a funny story probably, uh, you know, in regards to schooling is, is, um, you know, I never applied myself greatly. I managed to, you know, I managed to get myself through, did what I had to do and was never great on doing homework and all that, but, but a bit of a realization, you know, like I think you need back then, you need the passing grade 10 maths and English and science or something. I remember not studying at all for this maths test. And, and that was back in the days when, you know, you used to get your own papers back to mark them and, uh, or after they'd been marked and you can review them. And uh, I think, uh, you know, I was one mark away, I got a D and I was one mark away from getting a C or something. And uh, I think my answer had two in it that needed to be an eight. So I managed to change that to an eight and convince the teacher that she'd seen it wrong. And, <laughs> <laughs> managed to get the mark that I needed and, and off I was and then it was good. I was good to go to the army then. <laughs> classic. Absolute classic. Now whereabouts like run us through the, the application process for the army. And what year was this? What what, what year are we talking? So two thousand and one. Um so yeah, two thousand and one was when I put my initial application in. I think back then, I'm not sure what it is now. It's been a long time since I've been been applying for the army or being in the army even. But it was back then. It was sixteen nine months. You could start all the all the paperwork to to get you going, and and um, so sure enough, I was I was keen as mustard. I used to like I was saying, I was doing army cadets at the time, and I actually was uh, was was good mates back then with another guy you've had in your podcast uh, recently, which I was pretty happy to hear because I'd lost contact with him. Is uh, Luke Andrews? <laughs> Big blue. <laughs> the blue dog and uh yeah i joined like yeah so we were both uh doing cadets we weren't in the same unit but we'd done a couple of promotion courses together and and we're both rangers mate we're both into boxing and that sort of stuff like he used to go to a different club but i used to rob my bike into the city from where i lived in Mount Gravatt and used to rock past his gym and say good on the way past and we run into each other every now and then on cadet camps and when i joined the military 
I sort of lost contact with him and didn't know what happened. So it was actually quite cool to hear on the podcast the other week uh, where he ended up uh, where he ended up getting to. So uh, if yeah. you're listening, mate, well done. It, uh, it was good to hear your voice and what you got up to. So well done. Yeah, right, mate. Uh, I'll, I'll reach out to him. Um, where, where'd you grow up in Brizzy? Uh, Mount Cravat on the south side. Mount Cravat, that's crazy because obviously uh, you're 1984, I'm 1984. So we yep. probably could have crossed paths in parties around that area because I grew up in Carindale. <laughs> and I used to, where did I used, you go to school at? I went to Cav Road. Are oh, you kidding? Yeah, I yeah. Mac- I was at Mac- oh, 100% we went to the same party somewhere and probably because I punched on with Macravat kids all the time. <laughs> That's uh, highly likely that was us. <laughs> yeah, but there you go. How crazy, mate. How crazy. That's pretty funny. Yeah, so obviously 2001, September 11. Uh, again, mate, we're both just, uh, just finishing year 12 and – Run us through that day. Do you remember it? I remember it. Yeah, definitely. I think you know it's a it's a bit of a pivotal moment for anyone who was either in the military or looking to get in the military around that stage. And you know, obviously, I was um, you know I was right at the stages there of, of joining the military. And it, um, I think you know, look, I was pretty young back then, and and probably didn't take it into account for you know what would what that would eventually mean for my career and the next sort of ten years of my life. Um, but I remember just watching it and just go, you know, I remember walking to school and not being able really to fathom the amount of destruction and death that it caused. And um, I do, yeah, quite vividly remember thinking like the amount of people that must have been killed in that and then not so much the anger but almost just the disbelief that, that, that someone could do that. And, uh, you know, again, going back to being so young, like not having the appreciation of how mm. much an idealistic ideation uh, you know, it could make someone want to do that. Uh, and, you know, it definitely wasn't until later years. You know, it was, yeah, look, the first five years of the Army was just a massive adventure for me. And, you know, it was it was all about hanging out with your mates and, you know, going bush and then, you know, all the running amok when you got back and, and whatnot. Yeah, right. So you call 13-1901 and you head to <laughs> <laughs> you head to the CBD for at the recruiting station in Queen Street, I'm pretty sure it was back then. Yeah, sure it was. Yeah, so yeah probably, I remember it well. Probably the same one I, the exact same one I went to. Yeah. And what what year was this? Two thousand two. Uh so initially would have gone in there, yeah, two thousand one to start doing all the initial application process yeah, yeah. and testing and yeah, you know, all your stupid testing and fitness testing, all that sort of stuff. Um and yeah, so then on the twenty twenty second of January two thousand two, I'll never forget that date, jumped on the bus there in Queen Street and headed off down to Kapuga. Yeah, right. And how how are you like, how was everything going? You're like, fuck, um, I mean, this is the big boy world now. You're off. I was separated oh, from your parents, yeah, obviously, that separation from was, the parents. Definitely wasn't. Yeah, definitely was. Look, I was definitely ready to get away from home. Um, you know, it was a bit of a driving force and joining so young as well. Just wanted to, you know, I just wanted to cut the apron strings and go fly my own flag and, and you know, get that adventure going. But it probably was, uh, you know, the perception versus reality, I think, for any 17-year-old when you get off that bus in that first couple of weeks, Kapuga. As a 17-year-old, like, you know, to be honest, looking back, I probably struggled. Like, it was, you know, it was definitely a different world and, you know, you, you get, you know, getting yelled at and, and stuff. Look back at it now, like, I think, you know, if I was to go back to Kapuga now, like, it would just be an absolute walk in the park and a laugh. But, but uh, you know, for anyone that's sort of listening that's, you know, that's young, I'd, I'd say, you know, just be prepared for it. It's not what you think it's going to be. It it ain't as fun as you probably think it's going to be. But, uh, but, you know, look, you got through it and, had some pretty good roommates there and pretty good mate and uh, mates that I still talk to now and and uh, yeah got through that and and off uh, up the road to Singleton we went yeah so you jump on the buses well Kapuka's only six and a half weeks at that stage too isn't it back in two thousand two 
Yeah, it was only yeah. a six-week course. Six yeah. weeks. And um, were there many infantry guys in your platoon? We had quite – no, we had a fairly we had a fairly big mix. And our sister platoon uh, was the same. So I was in Bravo Company 14 platoon. Um, and, yeah, no, we had a pretty good mix. I think my room we had – we had one guy who was going to cavalry. Um, we had me that was going to infantry. Me and another guy that went to one RAR. We did, um, and then I think the other guy might have been going to artillery. Uh, and then the rest of the the rest of the platoon was yeah, it was a spread of everything, SIGs and and Rayok and um Rainey. Um so now we had a we had a pretty good mix. Yeah, right. And then obviously up to Singleton for initial employment training. How did you find that uh you know that I think that was ten weeks Singo at that stage. How did you find Singo? You know, obviously learning about Much infantry better. tactics and being but yeah. Yeah, enjoyed it far more, you know, like you had a bit more freedom up there and um, you know, the, the training was much more sort of realistic and, and, you know, task driven to, you know, to the actual job you're going to. And, and, uh, no, I quite enjoyed Singleton. Um, it wasn't too far from where my mum and my stepdad had just purchased the property out near, uh, out near Mudgee. Uh, so I was able to shoot home a couple of weekends there and spend some time with the family. And then the other weekends shoot in Newcastle or Sydney and, and, uh, and run a mark. And, turning uh, it on. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, and like, I was only yeah, look. I was only still seventeen then, but still managing to uh, to sneak into pubs and clubs, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, do the best we could. And uh, yeah, and no, I had a really good time at Singleton. Quite enjoyed it. Yeah, right. So, and you know, at what stage did you get your selections for? You went to two two hour. Yeah, correct. So I um yeah, because I've been from Brisbane. Uh, I was hell bent on going back to Brizzy, um, but that wasn't an option. So I think two hour, one hour. And five seven were the options for us, and I think we had a we had section commanders from each of those units there, uh, and so they all came out and gave us gave us their two cents on on what each unit did, and uh, I can't even remember what the thought process was to go to tour AR. You know, it's always don't know. Just did it, yeah. No, fair call. <laughs> Just did. It. I think my, I think my mate, my mate that I was, uh, my mate that I was in my section in my pit, he wanted to go to two, and I was like, yeah, cool, that sounds good. Let's go to two. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, better than five seven. They're they're, they're the ultimate ramps down, pants down. <laughs> yeah, look. Unfortunately, you know they, their uh, their reputation precedes them. <laughs> so obviously, you finished your ten weeks at Singo, uh, jump on a plane, and straight up to Townsville. How was the reception into the battalion? Obviously, that day and age, I know for a fact for myself, marching into three hour is a different experience. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It was probably it was probably a little bit drawn out for us. So, um, two hour second team had just come back from uh, a rotation in Timor. So, when we got there, most of the most of the team was on stand down from coming back from Timor. So. It was just, you know, it was it was a gaggle of all lids and rios and and you know and broken guys that hadn't gone over there that was that was there when we first marched in. So it was probably a little bit of a, um, you know, it was probably a little bit of an easing of the pineapple to to uh, to for lack of a better term uh, for a few weeks. And then um, and then once everyone came back on board off off leave, we um, yeah we got allocated to our platoons and uh, to our companies and platoons and and yeah then it was then it was like holy moly this is. Uh, yeah, this is cool. <laughs> straight off to the mad cow. <laughs> straight, to the, oh, straight to the mad. I think it was straight to the criterion. So, um, 
we're living in the old lines back then, which, you know, those big long hallways, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. You know, the big common room and, and SALs at, at either end. And, and uh, I remember these guys coming back and having this party in the common room and like just going off, you know, like just ramping it hard. And uh, as you know, as a seventeen-year-old, only really experiencing partying around Magravat and fighting the guys from Cab Road, <laughs> I was like, "Holy shit, these guys are going to kill me!" Like, I'm not going out there. And um, and then I'm, I'm like, "Well, I can't remember what happened, but one of them's come in, like, get out of here, lead you come and drinking with us." And and uh, so that was it. We're off the Criterion, and um, and they wouldn't. They're like, "Oh no, you need an ID to get in." And so one of my mates who I joined the army with. And uh, we both got a nine platoon together. He's like, here, yeah, he was from the Northern Territory. And there's another ranger. And we sort of half looked a bit like each other. And he's like, here, take my ID and just walk in, you know, a bit after me. And that worked for a while until we just got too pissed. And then we walked in one after the other. And they're like, looking at the IDs, looking at us, going, hang on a sec. You can't both have the same name. And anyway, so we've legged it. And I think he got caught by the cop. He might have got locked up for the night. And I got away and ended up back in the line, spewing up in the showers and <laughs> Mate, that's that's the army I know. <laughs> yeah, yep. absolutely. Uh, that was that was classic army two thousand two one oh one. Yeah, so late two thousand and two, you bust your knee, and there's yeah. Uh, so that was the first time. Yeah, first, first time I busted my knee and just out for a morning PT run and uh, running back past the old uh, MOE facility and. And just uh, yeah, put my foot into a put my foot into a you know a vehicle rut or whatever, and and next thing just yeah, but I heard a big snap and turned out snap my PCL and and so that was the uh, that was the start of a fairly long recovery process and the army uh, you know the army rehab program back then was nowhere near as what it is yeah, as good as it yeah. is now yeah but back then it was once you're broken you're just a linger and and uh, so that was a little <laughs> bit disheartening to be honest with you. <laughs> And, uh, you know, as you're trying to get all this physio in and stuff, you can, you're watching your mates go off and do all these cool exercises, go up the high range and not, you know, not the gun, a high range is, is cool. But, you know, back then it was, you know, you're like, all you want to do is go out and cut your teeth, you know, start start learning the trade. And, you know, I saw your mates again doing this cool stuff, going up with Tully, you're like, oh, you're missing all this stuff. So it was pretty disheartening there for a while and trying to rehab. And, yeah, the rehab facilities being nowhere near as good as they are now. It, was, yeah, it wasn't the best of starts, but, you know, it was pushed through and, and uh, eventually got it right, and um, and yeah, eventually put the core transfer in for for cavalry, which is where I always wanted to go. I've always had always had an interest in vehicles, and and uh, especially military armored vehicles. Uh, when I joined up, there wasn't there was no spaces in cavalry uh, then, so I, I took the took the next best option, going to infantry, and then once I got rehabbed, yeah, put my put my transfer in, and and uh, and core transferred to to armor corps. Yeah, right. Did you get uh, medically classed downgrade from the infantry? Is that why you? Yeah, because I got Mac downgraded to Mac two. Yep. So basically, that, you know, that was yeah, part yeah. of your reason for moving into, you know, a, a motorized capability. Yeah. Well, sort of writing was on the wall um, when I had, when I got the injury. Uh, the doctor and the, the ortho is not like, oh mate, your knee, your knees aren't like the grooves for your patella or whatever aren't you know what they should be. It's a little bit of a deformation, you know, like the risk of. Risk of re-injury moving forward if you stay in this job is pretty high. And I was like, well, I don't want to, you know, like I don't want to not be in a combat role. Like I still want to be in a combat role. I had a you know a big passion for you know back then the APCs and the ASLABs were you know were still quite young in into the military then. So I was like, well, you know, look, I'll I'll um I'll pursue my my original interest of going to armor and uh, and yeah, core transfer to armored corps and, and go to the cavalry. 
Yeah, right. So you transfer to CAV and you head down to Puckapunyal 2006, I'm guessing? Yeah, it would have been, yeah, circa 2006, I think it was. During your, actually, just quickly, during your time down at Puckapunyal, you didn't have uh, a couple of grunts from 3RR, a lot of fire extinguisher off in a, a common room, did you? Oh, yeah, we did. <laughs> that was <Yes>. me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did you? Were you upstairs? I do remember that. Holy What's shit! That, sorry, you were upstairs. Yes, I was on the yep. booze. I was pierced off my face, and we let that fire extinguisher off in the common room downstairs. And I'm sure we, I, I'm sure we met then because all I remember, yeah, a couple of grunts downstairs, three RR boys. That was me. Uh, and yeah, <laughs> we having chats and stuff on the way through because I was still, yeah, I was still wearing my green beret until I. Until I passed the the IET course yeah. there, so um, yeah, right, small yeah. world. No doubt we've met then. <laughs> Far yeah, that was a that was a crazy night. About ten thousand dollars worth of damage, you know, loss of pay and <laughs> rompers, and yeah, it was, a, it was a long couple of weeks for me. <laughs> how crazy! Um, so yeah, so how how did you find the CAV IETs? Uh, Interesting. Um, oh, the start of it's boring as shit, mate. You go away and you do you do your comms phase, um, which is I think it's like six weeks. Learn the radio harness and like yeah, that radio harness inside those as labs. You know, it's a complicated little beast. Um, but you know the 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 experience you got on radios um, was great, and then the ability then you know like Cav has got a really good reputation of having great comms and being able to talk on the radio quite quickly and effectively. And you can see how that comes about by the amount of effort they do put into training you uh, in those comm suites. Uh, so as for as boring as it was, uh, it definitely paid dividends later on in my career. And even now, like working with working with different comm suites up here and in remote parts of Australia, uh, definitely paid off. So, the first, so as much as the first few weeks were boring as hell, once we got in the driving and servicing phase and the, and the gunnery phase, I was just, I was, I was on cloud nine. It was, it was a fantastic job, best job I've ever had. Yeah, and this is all for the ASLAV, correct? Yeah, correct. Yeah, that's, this is the Aslav. Are they starting to bring in Abrams at that stage too? Weren't they? Dan and Pucker. Yeah. So yeah. the guys that were going to the tank, the guys that were going to One Armoured, which was the which was a tank pure tank regiment back then, were still doing their IETs and the old Leopards. Yep. Yep. Um, and I think they were just starting to transition um, the Abrams into service then. So a lot of the guys from One Armoured were coming down and doing their conversion courses. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Now, how long was uh, Pucker? About three, four months, wasn't it? It's quite an extensive course, isn't it? Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think it was about three or four months. Um, it was a fair stint. Yeah, um, but I had a great time. You know, like on the weekends, go down to Melbourne on the, you know, bar that, going to Seymour and playing up in there. <laughs> Classic. So you finish IETs and then. You get posted to – what do you get posted? Finally got my posting back to Brisbane. Finally got a posting Oh yeah, right. uh, to Brisbane, to 2nd 14th, Lord Horse Regiment. Yeah, right. And, uh, and straight into straight into C-Sport in there. So I was pretty happy, pretty happy to be home, happy back back in Brisbane, catching up with a few mates. But the tempo, the tempo ramped up as soon as we marched in. Like it was just on like Afghanistan that kicked off um, for regular forces with 2nd Cavalry Regiment. Um, going into Afghanistan and I, you know, Iraq had been going for a while, I think, back then or maybe I can't remember. 
Um, the IBG trips, the IBG trips kicked off. Sectet was still going. Afghanistan was kicking off again. Um, so you know the, the the need for armor over there was huge. So yeah, from the moment we marched in, we we're getting ready. Uh, we we're getting ready for trips straight away. Like we knew that RTF two was coming up. There was sector trips coming up. There was OB, OBG just come back. So two cab had taken over the rotations for for OBG. Then all the sectors had rotated to us, and the next Afghan trip was uh, was on to us. So yeah, C squad was was just getting pumped there. Yeah. So 2007, you uh, prepped for RTF two. Uh, how'd you go? You go up to Shoalwater, Tinkan Bay. Um. Yeah. So I'm just trying to cast my mind back a bit now. So. We yeah we got there. I think our first initial shakeouts was yeah up to Wide Bay or or so yeah I think it was it was yeah Wide Bay training area, mm. um, which again was great. You know back up where you know in my teenage years I spent a lot of time camping and four driving and so I was having a ball and I had a really good mate of mine uh, that had transferred across from infantry to cavalry as well. Uh, who you've also had in your podcast, Mick. Yeah. Uh, so we were having, and we were in the same squadron together, same same troops. So we were having a great time. Like, and you know, he wasn't living far from where I was, and and uh, you know, we were, we were on the piss a lot as well. And and uh, yeah, we were just having an absolute great time, having a ball, and uh, yeah, doing a lead up training in Shoalwater, Wide Bay, uh, was in Green Bank with it, with the sort of three main places. We were, we were sort of honing our skills. Yeah, nice. And obviously, with two fourteen, who was the Battalion? Was it one RR or two RR? That we went on RTF two with. Yeah, yeah, one RR. So one, one RR. RR. So, um, so RTF two was the second, um, you know, regular reconstruction. Obviously, the second reconstruction task force to go in. That was led by a engineer command element. So our CO our, for the trip was a, was an engineer. Um, was an engineer lieutenant colonel. Um, so I think I'm pretty sure RTF's one construct was very similar. Where you had your reconstruction um, teams, your security task group, and then there was something else. So obviously our role within that was was a security task group, and yeah, working alongside uh, one RIR, coming bring the vehicles back up to back up to Townsville. I think we actually road ran. We yeah, we did. We we did a road run all the way from Brisbane up to Townsville in the labs. That was oh, that was shit. pretty cool. Yeah, right. That's a long drive. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. So we used to back then. We used to road run everywhere. Like whenever we went on exercise, whether it be a you know water or or Tincan Bay, or you know Townsville, yeah, road run, and uh, you know we'd, we'd rip up the rocky, stay in the rocky base overnight, and then do the rest of the trip the next day. It was, it was bloody because the labs can get along, you know, 100 kilometres an hour. Um, so it was, it wasn't uncommon to to be on the highway overtaking man and pop in the caravans and <laughs> in this you know, big massive armoured vehicle with 25 mil chain gun passing passing the caravan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hell yeah, it was sick. <laughs> So you get to Afghanistan, you fly into Tarankout. How's uh, how's the emotions? Obviously, this is your first deployment into an active war zone. Uh, at that stage, you know it was starting to kick off in Afghanistan and turn it on. Yeah, it was great. Like, yeah, fantastic. I was just amped. Um, again, still probably a bit naive. I was only I was still pretty young. Then I think I was only twenty two or twenty three. Um, yes, but just amped. Not really taking into account all the political stuff behind it or anything like just you know you hear about stories from other you know you listen to or read books of guys that fought in world war one and world war two and you know they were just there for the adventure and nothing's changed like you, you know you literally just joined up want to go there for the adventure be with your mates and have their back and and that's what it was all about you know you didn't really care about well i didn't anyway i didn't care about the ideologies or anything like that it was just it was just a massive adventure 
and uh, you know, good excuse to you know be super cool and roll around and you know, multi million dollar, thirteen and a half ton armored vehicle, and and you know, have a shitload of fun. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, exactly, mate. You're exactly right. Exactly right. So, however, uh, during your RTF two experience, you bust your knee again. Unbelievable, like absolutely unbelievable. So, I've been out in a couple of patrols, you know, and I do remember vividly rolling out the gates for that first patrol, and then it becoming very real. You know, stepping outside, you know, you, you fly out of Brisbane, you do all your, your lead up training there, and, and you fly into Q8. It gets you know that that level of of you know, ampness sort of comes up a level, um, you know, then you do, you get into country and, you know, you, you live in TK. And when we first got there, we were in Camp Russell. They hadn't, they hadn't built the stables down in, down, uh, in the Dutch camp for us yet. So it was pretty cool. You know, like the, a couple of special forces guys were still hanging around there and, uh, you know, so you're a little bit starstruck by that. And, you know, it was great. It was, uh, but then I do, you know, the first patrol down at the gates and you're like, holy shit, this is real now. And, you know, the threat of contact and an IED strike is now right up there. And I do remember having that sort of 50 cent, five cent moment, but then just rolling down the road in TK and be like, yeah, it's on. Like, let's, let's do this. What was uh, your, what was your position? But yeah, I only got about two. What's that? Sorry. What was your position in the cat, in the, in the lav? On that first trip, I was a driver. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and, 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 um, sorry, uh, you know, Really, really loving it. You know, like they're a great vehicle. They're a great vehicle to drive. Um, heaps of torque, heaps of power, and, and um, yeah. So, but yeah, getting back to your question. So, I only got about two or three trials into it, and um, we, I think, well, I think so. Our team had come across from Australia to do a heap of inspections on the vehicles over there, and granted a whole lot of them. And um, so our fleet was uh, was significantly uh, reduced in size. So we came up, the boss came up with a plan to re-roll a few of us in a dismounted capability and sort of like a cab scout, you know, the old traditional sort of cab scout yeah, role yeah. that we hadn't trained for. You know, it was on like a fly with a city of pants and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll just make it work later. And, and you know, so me and uh, me and were like, yeah, cool, let's do it. Like get back to get back to be on the ground and and uh so anyway so we practiced so we started running a few drills and started trying to teach what we knew to the to the cavalry guys that hadn't done that sort of stuff before and we're doing a break contact drill so i think the i think the plan might have been you know that we'd go up into a into an lup on the you know, on on the on the another side of a hill and you know we'd patrol up and you know put in a put in a put in a forward observation post and see what we could see and you know so if we did get contacted we had a you know we taught the guys how to do you know a break contact drill and as we're doing that, I've um, you know I've gone to stand up and run in tunnel love, and then that knee's given out again, and and uh, that was it. It was uh, yeah, that's it, mate. Far out. Yep. How was it, like? How were you feeling? Obviously, like get fucked. Not not now. Devastated. Yeah. Yep. Devastated. Like we spent all this time working with all you know working with with the troop. Uh, we had the troop plus then like with you know a troop of labs back then was you know, I'm not sure what it is now. Uh, but, you know, six vehicles and then uh, we took an extra three over there, an extra three vehicles and crew over there as well so we could run uh, three separate patrols. Our patrol was, was three vehicles, a troop was was six. Uh, so we wanted the ability to run three patrols. So, you know, you spend all your time working with these guys and a lot of them, a lot of the drivers, like we'd all gone through pucker together and, and whatnot. So formed some pretty good relationships and, uh, yeah, unfortunately, yeah, busted my knee and, 
and uh, and got flying back to got flying back to Australia. Fuck. So all the boys are still in the war zone, kicking ass, and you've been sent back to Australia for more rehab. I've been sent back and uh, for my rehab again. Uh, the injury wasn't as bad as the first time I'd done it. My recovery wasn't quite as long. But a bit of a funny story, a bit of a funny backstory. That one is um, so I'd been flying out, so I'd sort of they'd flew me back to Kuwait and to get some x-rays and stuff. And they're like, yeah, mate, yeah, it's, look, it's not, it's not overly bad, but it's not going to recover in time for you to go back to the trip. So we're just going to send you back to Australia. And so I was devastated. And they said, oh, we're going to fly a nurse over from Australia to escort you back to, uh, to escort you back and make sure you're right. And I was thinking, well, that's not so bad then. And um, I was like, you beauty, you know, like I haven't, haven't seen, haven't seen a woman for, for a few months. <laughs> And uh, you know, my leg at that stage, my knee was locked. My leg was locked out straight. I couldn't bend my knee, so they had to fly me back on a on an Emirates Skybed. And and um, I thought, you beauty, here we go. I'm getting a first class business class trip back to Australia with some hot nurse is going to come out from and escort me back. And had all these grand ideas in my head. And I'm sitting there in the hospital waiting for this hot nurse to come in. And and in walks Steve, and he's like, "Hi, <laughs> you must be Luke." <laughs> I was like, "Oh, no. <laughs> oh it is what it is, mate. Just put a wig on." And then, <laughs> anyway, so get onto the uh, we get on the airplane, and uh, you know, when you go on business class, they come up there straight away and ask you want a drink, and I'm a I'm a bit of a rum pig, and uh, this host he said, "Oh, can I get you a drink?" And I was pretty high on a few different drugs, painkillers, and whatnot. And um, and I said, yeah, I'll have rum and coke, please. And uh, and Steve, I said, oh, Luke, I've been given strict instructions and not let you drink on the way home and blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, I remember looking at I said, Steve, I said, I've just spent the last two or three months, whatever it is, in the, in the world's shittest country. And I said, I haven't seen a woman for a long time. And I said, I thought I was getting a hot nurse to bring me home. <laughs> I said, and I got you, no offense. I said, so if you think that I'm not having a drink on this plane on the way home, then, you know, we're going to have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and he looks over me and goes, oh, well, when you put it that way, off you go then. And so I got absolutely trashed on the way up. Oh, fuck on, it. Yeah, right. Yeah, um, so, sorry, I'm, I'm literally just texting uh, Blue right now. And, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, right. It hey, looks mate. like uh, he's in a vehicle with Marco O'Hare. And they looks like they're filming that, yeah, that TV actually, show. Yeah, so I think. Yeah, I think Marco here was actually on my Iraq trip. He was with Six R R when yeah, right. Iraq. Yeah, right. Fuck, small I'm, world. I'm pretty sure he's in a different com- – well, I think we're in a different combat team. So you get back to Australia, you're back on rehab again, sucking it up, bit of physio, oh, a fair bit of physio, and like what, what, what were you thinking? Were you thinking this is the end of my career type thing or, you know, what was the plans? No, I, no, I wasn't thinking that. I was pretty disappointed. Um I was pretty disappointed, obviously, but I definitely knew it wasn't the end of my career. Like, there was more trips coming up. Uh, on a, I knew ABG four was coming up, uh, and I knew they, you know, they, they were going to need people for that. Like we we're just getting pulled left, right, and centre. So uh, by then, the military rehab program had increased, had, had improved quite a bit, um, and my my staff within the unit, um, you know, were quite good at making sure that the health company was was really on to was on to my rehab. So I had a lot of support. Uh I had a lot of support then and um and only took a few months to rehab from it. And uh, as soon as they as soon as they cleared me, I was on the I was on the on the list. I was on the I made the cut to 
to go on to OBG4. So, um, yeah, went over to A Squadron and, um, and started to lead, lead up training with, uh, with all those guys, which was hard to come into initially. Like all those guys were, um, were all, had all been to Iraq previously on, I think, AMT, one of the AMTG rotations. So they were a tight team. Um, yeah, if they hadn't done, yeah, they'd all done trips together, and so I was just this outsider coming in. So initially, it was a little bit, uh, you know, it was a bit intimidating, but it didn't take long. Yeah, you know, it's like in the army, you you transfer from one platoon to another or battalion, and it doesn't take long to to fit in and make new friends. And and uh, yeah, so we'll then we'll we'll straight into lead up training for for OBG. Yeah, right. Any of the boys uh, from your previous trip from the GAN? That jump straight on OBG? No, so they were all when we deployed, they were all just coming back. Yeah, because um, gotcha. I do yeah, I do remember quite vividly when um when Poppy Pierce was killed, I knew him quite well. Uh, and that was I think it was right at the start of our um I'm pretty sure it was right at the start of our rotation to, into Iraq, and that rocked that really rocked me, and it rocked a lot of people in in the labs because you know, we thought we were, we almost thought we were invincible in those things. You know, like like in Afghanistan in the early days, like it was very similar to Vietnam. Uh, you know, Viet Cong tactics in Vietnam, where you know in the early rotations, the Viet Cong would just you know try and get in shootouts with the guys in the APCs, and the weapons overmatch was 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 just massive. You know, the the guys from from the cavalry and the APCs was cutting them down with fifty cows and. And just like the guys in the labs were doing over in Afghanistan, they're just using that twenty-five mil, yeah, you know, Bushmaster chain gun, and just absolutely prosecuting, uh, prosecuting the enemy. And and um, so it wasn't until later on um, that you know the IED threat in Afghanistan particularly became more of an issue. I think it, you know it was already quite an issue in Iraq because America had been there for quite some time. And but you know if you read the books on the invasion, you know you read that that book, the I think it's called the Run Up or something. Uh, and the same thing, like there wasn't much IED threat when they first went in because, again, they were just smashing with Bradleys, smashing them with Abrams, smashing them with Lavs. You know, don't bring a knife to a gunfight, sort of a thing. Yeah. Um, and the IED threat didn't didn't develop for a few years uh, after you know America invaded, but it developed very very quickly. And so by the time I went to Iraq, the IED the IED threat there was huge. Uh, and then when Poppy got killed. Um, you know, especially as a driver, um, you think you're, you're even more protected inside there because you, because you, you know, you lock your hatch down, and so that was that was a bit of a wake up call and and stuff for us, and um, yeah, things become probably a bit more real then. Yeah, and that's uh, just back to RTF two. There was a bit of bit of bit of contact going on with uh, when I spoke to Mick. Oh, the boy. Yeah, so, the boys were so they were having really good engagements, you know, like really getting to cut their teeth and and do some really, you know, typical cavalry tactics, you know, like I think that September contact there, you know, that they talk of. Um, and Mick described it has described it to me in great detail, and I'm still epically jealous that I couldn't be involved in it. Of you know, just I've literally been up in the hill in, in SBF support by fire locations and, you know, where, where you have designated fire zones and, you know, having crossfire, frontal fire, you know, in those real typical cavalry engagements, um, you know, call for fire, uh, jockeying back off features, you know, doing wine glass jockeying features to re-bomb, like just cool shit, like 
Um, I don't think anyone, I think RTF3 had a couple of good contacts. I don't think anyone, maybe the guys on MTF had some pretty good shootouts too. But at the time, like no one in Cavalry had experienced that. So, um, you know, it yeah, right. Just uh, check your audio. Just talk again. Sorry, mate. You just cut out. I just lost you. Yeah. Lost your sound. Now, your sound's gone to shit, too. Hang on, listeners. We've got uh, technical difficulties. Sorry, mate. You there? Yeah, gotcha. Sorry, mate. It's, uh, my Bluetooth had switched over there to my earbuds for a second. So, yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, so, um, fuck, where are we? OBG, just quickly, uh, you know, for the listeners that uh, don't know what OBG is, can you just have a quick uh, rundown debrief on what your role was? Yeah, so OBG is an acronym for Overwatch Battle Group uh, West. So we were based out of southern Iraq, sort of halfway between Baghdad uh, and uh, Basra. They're sort of two more sort of common places people won't be familiar with. And we're in an air base there called Talil, which was just outside a little town called uh, Nazaria. Uh, and interestingly enough, in the in the invasion of Iraq, uh, Nazaria was where the Americans got their ass absolutely handed to them with resistance there. And they, it took them a long time. They took a lot of casualties getting through there. So it was pretty cool to know some of that history prior to going in there uh, and seeing, uh, you know, seeing. Uh, some of those places that, I, that I'd read about. So our role there was, was you know, to provide protection and convoy support uh, to some of the operations that were going on again over there. Um, and again, it was still an adventure. Uh, I mean, I've had people ask me, you know, what was Iraq like? What was Iraq like? And, you know, Iraq's a big desert. Like it's, you know, if you see a tree, it's a novelty. And the best way, I was actually, I was in the plane coming back from something the other day and I was watching Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, and there's that scene, there's a couple of scenes in there where, uh, you know, they're flying across the desert with all those war machines, chasing them down, uh, you know, with a cool rock music playing in the background. And I was like, you know what? That's what Iraq was like, just rocking around in highly modified vehicles with shitloads of firepower, protecting someone's oil. Yeah, yeah, right. And how, how big was the AO? Was it, is it quite, obviously, quite an extensive AO? Oh, it, was, it was huge. Like, we... Yeah, we did some massive road runs there. Like we would go, we'd almost go as far south as Basra. We'd go over to the border um, and then we'd go up as far north as um, Asamoa, um, yep. which is where ASAMTG, which was the precursor, the, the precursor trips to the OBGs were based out of Asamoa um, in, I can't remember the name of the camp there. Um but then they moved down to down to down to Talil, where the big airbase was. Um, so yeah, it was quite a big quite a big AO. We used to try and stick off. We tried to stay off the roads there as much as we could because the IED threat, especially through the EFPs, explosive form projectiles, was quite high. Um, and to counter that, we had um, you know we had a particular sort of a countermeasure in the front of our vehicles that would pre-detonate any sort of EFP uh, along the way. Um, which was quite effective. However, um, we had to travel quite slowly for that to work properly. So road runs um, were a long period. And, you know, it was hot as shit. You know, fifty-four degree days, and um, yeah, it was it was definitely a challenging uh, working environment. So, but if we could get off the roads, we would. So if we're doing like a couple of times there, we did like a proper squadron maneuver where we'd just go straight across the desert 
in proper cavalry, arrowhead formation. Um, that was just cool, you know. So you're looking at, you know, 20, 30 vehicles in a in a big arrowhead formation just flying across the desert. It was it was sick. That's fucking awesome. The OBG was comprised of um of two battle groups essentially. Yep. Uh, oh, sorry, not two battle groups, two combat teams. Uh, and then you obviously had your headquarters element. So when we were there, we had com- so we deployed with six RAR uh, and we had combat team Healer, uh, who were predominantly based out of Bushmasters. Uh, and they had a small, they had one troop, I think, of so six Aslabs attached to their combat team. And then we had combat team Whaler, which was a cavalry combat team, where we had the uh, majority Aslab platform. And I think we had a platoon of infantry attached to us. Uh, and so we shared the workload between us. So the, the, uh, the infantry guys would predominantly work inside Nazareer itself, I think, and do some highway work like we were doing. Yep. Whereas we would more sort of span across the deserts and the highways, putting in OPs and observing observing highways and trying to find people who might have been laying laying IEDs or, you know, it was it was very much winding down by then as well. So it was a lot of convoy escort sort of work and uh and that and that was also the trip that um that Liam Haven uh um, Oh it was yeah, same yeah, same trip. So when you, yeah, I heard you I heard you um your podcast with him as well. So yeah, that was the same trip. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, the mate uh that was a that was a crazy chat. Yeah, yeah. It's um he was a he was a different combat team to us, but obviously, you know, like it doesn't take long for word to fill it down when incidents like that occur and and uh yeah, poor uh, you know, very unfortunate incident. Yeah, yeah. So how long did you spend in Iraq? I think by the end of it, because we're the last, um, because we're the last rotation in into you know, for Iraq, um, we ended up being there for about seven and a half or eight months. By the time the uh, the FET, the force extraction team, which is a bunch of fucking idiots that came out from <laughs> Australia and had no appreciation for the fact we've been there for eight months and didn't give a fuck about cleaning the bilge of our vehicles, we're going to go home and get the piss and and uh, you know <laughs> and chase tail. <laughs> and uh, so that caused uh, that, you know. So we then got tasked with having to help them clean up, and they want us to pull a camp down. So I think we we commandeered a few merlots and we just driving merlots through tents and all this sort of stuff. And they're like, "By the end of it, it's like stop. Just you aren't helping us. Just fuck off." So we're like, "Yep, right out, bye." Yeah, right. Fucking hell. Uh, you get back to Australia, so you finish your deployment back to Australia and transfer up to Townsville. Yeah, I did uh, got my posting order uh, back up to Townsville, uh, B Squadron three four cav, um, which yeah, to be honest with you, I wasn't really keen on the time. I love second fourteen, love being in Brisbane, um, but you know that was just the that was just the breaks. But I was I was pretty keen on being part of the Bushmasters, like a bit more of a comfortable vehicle and new platform to learn. Air conditioning. And, and, uh, <laughs> Yeah, 100% air conditioning, uh, so a bit of an easier life for a while. Um, so, yeah, got B-Squadron back up to Townsville and, yeah, just back in the rotation of, you know, doing normal cavalry tactics, you know, start your year off with, you know, section-sized section size exercises in the, in the troop, in the squadrons, uh, and then marrying up with the, with the infantry, platoon, infantry battalions and, and just back into normal army warfighting day. We still... In saying that, you know, there were still trips going on. There was, I think by then it was, what were, the, what were they called then, MTFs or something? Yeah, yeah. Mentoring task force yep, that kicks off. Yep. As always, there was there was SOTG rotations going. 
but by this stage, I was over it. I'd had enough of the military life, and um, I'd started looking for work outside of that, and I'd had my application in for fire and rescue. I'd been forced assigned to MTF2, I think it was, and so going down to 2RIR, married up with them, started doing the lead-up training with them, and then got a call-up about, oh, I must have been a month or two into our lead-up training, got the call-up from the fireys and said, mate, you've been, you've been shortlisted for a position with fire and rescue. Um, come in for an interview, so I went in for an interview and and then a few weeks later uh, got an off got a job offer and so that was the end of my that was the end of my career in the military. Yeah, right. So you basically do an accelerated discharge and crack on with uh, the fiery side of thing. <laughs> that was definitely an accelerated discharge. So I had actually got a posting order the year before that to I think it was either go to Kapuka or go to Pucker. Oh, fuck that. Uh, and, yeah, 100% fuck that. I was like, no fucking way. I'm not going there. <laughs> and my OC, so B Squadron 3rd, 4th Cavalry Regiment was a little bit unique to the other cavalry units in Australia in that, you know, a cav- you know the second 14 and 2 Cav were regiments, you know, make comprise of three squadrons and, and the headquarters element. So, Whereas B Squadron 3-4 was only a squadron, so it was very small unit, very tight-knit, uh, great unit, absolutely fantastic. The, the atmosphere there uh, was tight. It was, you know, it was like old-school army stuff, so you got away with so much more than, than what you would have in other places. It was only run by a, by a major and a, and a warrant officer class two, um, so it was very tight-knit. But the OC knew that I was wanting to join the fire service and um, – I put in my retention to stay there another year, and he said, oh, "I want you to promise me that you're not going to go to the fire service if they offer you a job." I'm like, "Yeah, boss, no worries. I'll, no, I'm, I'm here for the long haul. I want to go back overseas again." And nah. and um, yeah, I think about three months after that occurred, I was I was like, uh, "So look, I just been offered a job with the fireies, and uh, I'm out of here." Yeah, right. Fucking hell. And he was, uh, yeah, he was quite, uh, he was quite upset. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So run us through. This fiery training, where is it and how was it? How long was it? Yeah, so uh, Fire and Rescue, uh, Queensland Fire and Rescue Service um, recruitment process can, well, back then it wasn't particularly long. Um, you know, you just have to jump through all the hoops, do your, do your aptitude testing, do your medical, do your fitness test, um, and you applied for where you wanted to be located. So as long as you passed your tests, um, you just went into a pool of applicants that was you know, wanting to go to that particular location. So I think I had um, – I think I had Townsville and Brisbane put down there. At the time, either of those either of those locations were particularly looking for recruits. So I got a phone call from, from recruiting saying, look, there's a position down in Bowen, which is about two and a half hours south of Townsville, a lovely little country town. You know, would you would you be prepared to go somewhere like that? And you know, back then I had no, you know, I had I had nothing holding me back. So I said, yeah, let's let's do it. Let's let's get into. And I just wanted out. You know, I just I wanted in the fire service, come hell or high water. So I took that down. So did that, and uh, so you go to Brisbane for your recruit course. Yep, which is which is about four months long, and yeah, you learn everything. You start at the basics, and then start working your way, working your way up through to you know starting to do your actual drills, and then going to live fire academy, doing all your level one rescue courses, uh, and learning everything you need to be a uh, a basic firefighter and sit on the truck and and respond to whatever incidents we're sent to. Yeah, right. How did you find the fiery training? Obviously, you have an extensive, you know, military career. 
you'd have that discipline and yeah. all that type of shit up the box. So how did you find the, the fiery side of things? Were they as strict? They thought they were. <laughs> they weren't. Um, <laughs> not compared to what I was not compared to what I was used to. So I shared a room with a guy who had lived in the Gold Coast his whole life. He'd been a brickie his whole life. Uh, so he'd never experienced anything anything like that. So whereas me, on the other hand, had come from Kapuka, military, highly structured. So um, to me, the discipline side of it was a walk in the park, and and I'm sure it's the same with police when they, you know, when they when it comes to learning how to do drill and all that sort of stuff, they lean on the military guys and like, right, I used to teach them how to do drill. So the whole structure, you know, the this the strictness of it definitely didn't didn't uh, didn't phase me one bit. It was almost a laugh some of the stuff they tried to do. I remember, you know, when we pulled up on the bus on the first day, they tried doing the whole Kapuga routine. And inside, I'm just absolutely pissing myself laughing. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, so, but no, then then obviously it's crack into your crack into your training, and yeah, the, and the training is quite good. The actual, you know, learning how to be a firefighter and the way they structure their recruit courses and and stuff is, uh, you know, it's quite good. So I really enjoyed that and getting my head around new skills. And you know, I think by this stage, I've been in the military for ten years and. I definitely needed a change, so it was good to see, you know, good to learn some new skills and uh, and whatnot. So, quite, yeah, really enjoyed it. So that that was 2011. That was 2011. That's correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how was your knee holding up? Like, how did you pass the medical? Uh, I disclosed it all when I joined up. Like, I'd um, it was pretty funny. So, like at the same time, I'd applied for the fire service. I'd applied for a core transfer to Army Aviation as a loadmaster. Mm. Um and passed the tests to get in there, uh, and the, my scores were relatively good. And they said, "Yeah, look, your scores are good. Do you want to do you want to do a couple more tests and see if you pass the test for pilot?" Which I did, and I passed again. Um, so I got all the way through to the final med board for the pilot selection, and then they said, "No, nah, you've had an knee reconstruction. You can't be a pilot." I said, "Oh, that's all right. I'll go be a loadmaster." They said, "No, no, you can't do that either." I said, "Oh, why not?" They're like, "Oh, because you, you know, you spend so much time on your knees, and you got to do a combat survival course." I'm like, "I've just bloody spent come out of a combat corps, been in Iraq and Afghanistan, and like, you know what? Whatever." Like, I was just like, yeah. "I was like, this is just typical army bullshit." Yep, yep. And um, I was like, "Nah, don't worry about it." And the fire service, yeah, I disclosed that to them, and I had knee reco and had to get. A, I think I had to go and get a get another clearance from an orthopedic surgeon or something to say that it'll be fine and. And uh, touch wood, I've not had a problem with it uh, since that second operation. So up to this time now, like, yeah, I need to take it easy on it occasionally. Um, but no, nah, it's never really presented too much of an issue to me since then. Yeah, right. And so you finish your, your four months of um, recruit, what are, they, what are they called, recruit firefighter training? What's, what's it called? Yes, yeah, recruit firefighter training, yeah. So you finish your training and then you're posted to Bowen. Yeah, posted down there. So I started my career uh, in Bowen. So uh, in those smaller country towns, you don't do a night shift there. You just do – you still do your four days on, four days off, but it's all day shifts and you're just on call uh, at night times. You carry a pager and if there's a job after hours, you 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 just come into the station and and go to whatever job is and – and uh, yeah, then come back to work the next day. So it was a pretty, it was a pretty good day. A nice station, nice relaxed station. Really good crew. Only two shifts there, so very tight. Again, nice old station, full of history. Um, Bowen, where it's situated, is about two hours, two and a half hours south of Townsville, and about two and a half hours north of Mackay. So the highway, we used to get quite a lot of highway work along there, which as a you know as a new firefighter. Uh, was good. You know, you, you're starting to put all those all those skills into practice. Um, you know, and unlike the military where I was, you know, where you only get to do your, your job for real 
when you go overseas on deployment, you know, the fire is every time those bells drop, you're, you're rolling out the door and you know it's going to be, you know, something, you know, it's going to be a real job. Even when you go to those alarm calls, um, you know, you still don't know that it's, that you still don't know that it's not a, it's not a fire until you, until you go into that zone or wherever that's, where it's active and, and you find out it's not. So <clears throat> every time you roll out the door, it's, it's, um, you don't know what you're going to. So that's, that's an aspect of the job I really enjoy. Yeah, right. And so just looking at the population of Bowen, there's about 10,500 people. How big was the fire station? Uh, so the fire station was, it was a three bay station. So we had, uh, you know, an alpha appliance, which is a, you know, which is, which is just a normal composite urban pumper, which does everything from uh, responding to fires, grass fires, any type of level one rescue incident, uh, any road crash rescue <clears throat> incident, hazmat, uh, the whole lot. You know, the, the alphas are equipped to be the first line response to any incident that we're required to attend. If we require uh, further backup on that, we've got plenty of specialist resources we can call uh, in the major cities. But Bowen, where it was situated, we had to be a lot more autonomous uh, because we, you know, we were two and a half hours from 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 major help if we needed it. Um, so it was really good, a really good place. I'd say for anyone that's out there listening that's thinking about joining the fire service and is hell-bent on going to a major capital city, think hard about going to a country fire station because you'll learn far more uh, by going there and you'll be exposed to a lot more, a lot quicker than what you will uh, in a city. And to put that into context, you know, like in a city you might have a house fire where you'll have four fire trucks responding to it initially and then, you know, maybe another one or two backing them up and you'll have firefighters coming, coming from everywhere trying to get into this fire you know, whereas in those small country towns, you know, you've only got one or two fire trucks coming, and you know, instead of fighting to get into a fire, you're fighting to get out because you're you're, you're buggered. Like you, by that time, you're cooked, and you know, you're absolutely you're hanging. So yeah, Bowen was just we had an Alpha um, and a Bravo, which is just an, just just a a mirror image of an Alpha, just a second response. And we had a um, just a Nissan Patrol Ute, which was used for. Uh, small grass fires, and then for in the swift water season, in the, in the wet season, for swift water response. Yeah, right. How was the how was the tempo? Um, oh, the fire service is funny like that. Like you'll go through periods where you know you'll be really quiet, and you'll go tours. You know, you'll go a week, two, three weeks without even getting one job, and then all of a sudden it'll just ramp right up, and without any explanation, you'll be responding yeah, two, three, four jobs a day in yeah, right. house fires, grass fires. Swift water jobs, like you know, all of a sudden you just start you start getting hammered with them. Um, so it would come and go, but um, but you know we you know had my first you know first house fire, um, which comes with a great story down in Bowen. First cutouts, first fatalities down there. So you know, really got to cut my teeth down there and and really appreciate the time I had there. Yeah, when you talk about your first house fire, mate, run us through it. Obviously, I've seen ladder forty nine. That's 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 about my extent of the, my firefighting yeah. career. <laughs> So run us through. Run us through like a typical day of a firefighter. We know you blokes sleep a lot and play a lot of Call of Duty. <laughs> um, so the normal typical, um, normal typical day. Sorry, two seconds. I must flick this phone call. No, you're off. There we go. Uh, so a normal typical day uh, as a fire for a day shift or a night shift is you'll rock in for your shift, <clears throat> do a shift handover with the crew that's coming off. Uh, and then you'll go out to the trucks at whatever your um, whatever your starter shift time is. Uh, put all your PPE on the truck and start doing your starter shift check. So um, the way that a fire truck works is that the guy that sits in the front 
uh, passenger seat. That's your that's your station officer. That's your OIC who runs who runs a shift and runs a station for that for that period of time. The guy that drives the truck is also the pump operator, and so arguably he has got he or she has got one of the most important jobs on the fire ground because uh, only do they have to get you there safely. They've also then got to operate the pump, get water into the pump, get water to you, and operate that. And the two the two fires in the back, it's their job to you know don the BA take that hose line, be on the tools for cutting someone out. You know, they're, they're the workers. Um, so when you do your start a shift check, the, the driver obviously checks all the lights and sirens and, and condition the vehicle while, you know, the guy, and, you know, he's check, they're checking the pump as well, making sure the pump's working properly. And um, while the other crews, you know, checking all the gear and the lockers, making sure that all the equipment's there, doing inventory checks, uh, while the officer's probably off in the room, off in the, off in the duty office, Crewing the appliance, having a look at what activities we got for that day. With it, you know, because a lot of a lot of people don't probably don't realise that we go and do a lot of community education. We do a lot of school visits, nursing home visits. We go and do a lot of inspections at licensed premises, depending on what sort of premise it is. So it's not just so when we're not, you know, so it's not as much time in the chairs as probably people think it is. And then there's a lot of study as well. So once you've done your start, so once you've done your start shift checks, we generally crack into a little bit of training. And that's, you know, that we commensurate to whatever stage of training individuals are up to uh, in their career. So it might be from, you know, basic firefighting uh, through to, you know, technical rescue training for guys that are wanting to go on and progress their their skills within rescue, you know, through to people who are getting qualified on the ladder platforms and all that. So generally the mornings are taken up with start of shift checks and weekly maintenance and training. And then you'll roll into rolling a smoke on lunchtime. And then after lunch, which is generally go out, do an inspection, do a school visit, something like that. Uh, and then the afternoon time's your own to, you know, do your study. You can go to the gym, like each station's got a gym. You know, it's written into our, it's written into our, our ward, you know, you get an hour of wellness a day so you can go to the gym or or whatnot. So the day the day shifts are definitely packed out. They're busy. Uh, it's the night shifts where, you know, you get to sit back and probably relax. And, uh, you know, once you've done your start of shift checks on night shift and you've done your training uh, prior to dinner or after dinner, the night's your own. Um, so if you've got study to do, like the, so the first three years of your career, you have mandatory study you've got to do. It's essentially your, your apprenticeship. Um, so normally the juniors are off, off away studying, learning their, learning their piece of equipment, doing their assignments uh, or getting ready for their exams. Um, and generally the, you know, the guys who are qualified, the senior fireys, the drivers, bearing the chairs, watching the movie, uh, <laughs> cooking up a feed for everyone or, or and then the officer, you know, he's off in the, he or she's off in the, in the duty room, filling out fire reports or, you know, chasing up, uh, you know, can, chasing up admin that need to be done from the day shifts. You didn't get to get done or things like that. And, you know, come 10 o'clock is generally what's considered bedtime. So everyone goes to their, goes to their bunks and, and racks out for night, gets up at six o'clock in the morning, generally cleans the station, mops and mops and cleans the station, has their breakfast and goes out, gets a coffee and waits for start a shift check and go home and do it all again the next night. Yeah, right. Far out. Sounds good. Sounds good. Now yeah, pretty good gig. Yeah. So when you're in a fire station, again, I'm only referencing the movies. I've got no idea how it works, but what does an alarm go off or a bell goes off and you start running to the yeah, trucks correct. and yeah, correct. So I think on a day shift, we've um, once uh, so obviously when you call triple zero, it goes it goes through the Telstra call centre, and you ask you now they ask you on police fire ambulance, and then that goes to whatever uh, organisation needs to go to. So it goes to our firecom operators, and um, so for knowledge of people out there, like a lot of people get frustrated when they call triple zero because the the operator is asking them an absolute shitload of questions. Um, 
And I get frustrated because I think that they're asking so many questions. That's delaying a time that's taking for a police car, a fire truck, or an ambulance to get to their location. But sitting across from that operator is another operator who is also listening to that yeah. information coming in. They're inputting that into a computer at the same time. You're right. Uh, they're turning us out from station, us that information while we're en route because that's absolutely essential uh, for the crews to know what they're going to so they can start doing a little bit of pre-planning uh, before they get there. So, yeah, well, so what happens to the bells? So we have a – we have a, a they, it's called the bells, but it's actually uh, – they're called the tones. It's a, it's, a, it's a tone system that comes over the PA in the station and it just starts quietly and starts getting louder and louder and it goes off for maybe 15 to 20 seconds. Um, at the end of that, the operator comes over the PA system at the station um, and tells you what the job is. So it tells you what the job is, uh, where it is, and any other resources that may be coming. And they also give you a printout, um, which the officer will grab um, and jump in the truck and, and off you go to whatever whatever incident may be. I think in, I think in, in day shifts, you've got 90 seconds to be at the door. I think in a night shift, you've got two minutes uh, to be at the door. So uh, you can go. So on a night shift, you know, like you can go from absolute dead sleep at 3 a.m. in the morning to two minutes later, um, you know, potentially responding to you know fully involved structure fire persons reported missing. So you're going from nothing to something uh incredibly quickly. So the adrenaline the adrenaline hit is uh is massive. Yeah. Uh just a you know, question on my behalf. Do they have fire poles still? <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, I, think only, uh, I think in Queensland there's only two fire stations with poles left and that's uh it's in Roma Street. Uh, and down the surface, paradise. Um, so no, they took fire poles out a while ago. Although interesting enough, I did just see that Maryborough, I think it was, uh, just got a big station upgrade. And instead of putting in a fire pole, they put in a big slippery slide. Oh hell yeah! <laughs> like the one, like the ones you see in a McDonald's playground. I was like, that is that is awesome. <laughs> that's awesome that's um, awesome i did get the chance to visit um the city of sydney fire station a number of years ago uh in castle ray street there uh and that's a very impressive fire station a lot of history there uh and i think it's over about five different floors uh and they've got a big pole that goes through goes through their station it would be cool to have a it would be cool to have a fire pole but uh but no nah, they got taken out a long time ago a guy got injured and um uh and it had some fairly bad consequences for him so yeah the fire poles got removed from from yeah. stations and I think, oh, I, I think yeah. a bit crazy they removed the poles because of workplace health and safety, but you're rushing into a fire. Wouldn't believe it, would you? Workplace health <laughs> yeah. and safety ruins some fun. Yeah, running straight into a fire. So, mate, quickly run us over your first uh, structure fire. Did you uh, run in, save the cat? Yeah, or? so I saved a cat. No, I didn't save a cat. I saved a um, – well, I kind of saved a dog. But, um, no, you get out, you, you do your live fire training. Um, you do your live fire training down to the school and, and so you're just hanging, like you're absolutely hanging out for that first structure fire. Um, and mine took a while to come through. And so we finally responded, and of course, in Bowen, we finally got responded on a page of callback one night uh, to smoke issuing from from the front of a house. And uh, so I was absolutely amped. And um, and so I got there, got there to this, uh, got there to this structure fire. Um, and there was, there was smoke issuing from, the, from one of the windows. And as I jumped out the truck, uh, this guy comes running over to me from the other side of the street and he's like, hey, mate, just uh, just be careful. Uh, the lady that lives there, um, you know, is, is schizophrenic. I said, right, right, thanks, mate. Thanks very much. And so I passed that, um, 
Oh, sorry, mate. I just got the ambos calling me. It's all right. That's no, you're right, essential. mate. If you need a, if you need to answer them, just uh, answer them. <laughs> no, no, it's all right. It's um, no, it's just my mate trying to call me. Actually, oh, is it? Yeah, right. He'll probably want to go fishing on the weekend or something. <laughs> Tough gig, mate. Tough gig. Um, so yeah, this guy. So I pass it. You know, pass the information to the crew. Obviously, that's pretty essential information. And um, so I grabbed the so my mate that I was with in the back of the truck. He grabbed he grabbed the hose line off the off the truck, and we donned our BA and uh, and in we went. And as we got to the front door, uh, there was this big big dog there that just come come and had a didn't want to let us inside the house and. And uh, anyway, so I had a fire extinguisher, a dry chemical powder extinguisher with me as well. And um, you know, we had to make entry to this place. So I just, uh, I just, I just gave the, gave the dog a quick squirt with the, with the dry chemical extinguisher, and off it went. So that was that was problem number one sorted. So we were able to make entry, force entry into his house, um, and and make our way. So we made our way in through uh, to the kitchen where there was, the fire had, had started by a pot that had been left on the stove. Um, and there was a fairly, yeah, the fire was in it was in a was growing fairly rapidly at this stage. So, so my mate on the branch was was you know doing his thing and putting his fire out and doing a real good job. And uh, and all of a sudden, I feel this person or this person just comes on and jumps on my back and and uh, starts screaming at me, telling us to get out of the house. And and like she's proper on my back, like trying to look. I'm giving her a piggyback, if you could imagine. <laughs> um, and she's screaming, it's like just hysterically screaming, get out, get out, get out of my house, you're the devil, you're the devil. And uh, like I was only 26, so I was still pretty young. Uh, and I'm, you know, so I'm still pretty a bit green. And I'm like, I'm not the devil, I'm not the devil, I'm a firefighter, your house is on fire, like you need to get out, get out. And uh, she's like, you're the devil. And she starts pulling up pulling my BA face mask. And you know, it's like the smoke's starting to come down a fair bit. And that, that smoke that you get up in the house fire that is very black and toxic and you take one breath of that, you know, and that's that's um, you know that's you knocked out for a while, and if you don't get pulled out, you're in a lot of trouble. And uh, so this, she's starting to pull my BA mask and trying to trying to take away my my supply of fresh air, and I'm like, get off! So this day I'm starting to get a bit cranky, and so I'm shouting, "I'm like Adam, Adam!" He's like, "Just get rid of her!" And um, so I'm sort of by this stage, I'm, I'm flailing my arms about and trying to get it off me, and anyway. My elbows hit her, and it's it's hit her straight in the face. You know, like like Conor McGregor's trying to knock out <laughs> Nate Diaz or someone, and and it's knocked her clean out. I'm like, oh no! And I said, Adam, I've knocked her out. And uh, and and it's not you know the, the communication between you isn't as isn't as uh, as clear as that. Like you when you're wearing breathing breathing apparatus, a mask, like you you sound like you sound like uh, Darth Vader. You're like, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, Adam. I've knocked her out. And he's like, well, get her outside. So I picked her up, scooped her up my arms, you know, like proper Hollywood style, you can imagine. And I've walked at the front door and and the cops are standing there and they're like, oh, did you rescue her from one of the rooms? Like, oh, I said, no, nah, I knocked her out. And and the cops looked at me, they're like, what do you mean you knocked her out? And I'm like, oh, well, she was trying to, she was on my back and trying to rip my mask off and calling me the devil. And I said, and I said, so I was just like trying to grab her off and all my, my elbows just hit her and it's knocked her out. They're like, oh, shit. Right, I mate, we'll just chuck her over the ambos, and so I went back in the house and put the fire out, and and um, yeah, we went back through. Yeah, it was it was pretty funny, and uh, we went back through the house afterwards, and you know, you're damping down, and and uh, I remember like, yeah, it was it was a really weird one because there was, was like dog shit smeared over the oh, walls, and fuck. and so yeah, it was a, it was definitely a a baptism a baptism of fire, uh, pun intended. <laughs> What a classic, mate. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, 
Far out. Yeah, so uh, so that was that was my uh, that was my exposure. That was yeah. the first exposure to house fire, and then yeah, you know, I had quite a number of, quite a number of house fires. Um, you know, since then of different you know varying degrees of of intensity, and and you know when you arrive, like when you you know a lot of those house fires, especially up in North Queensland, I was working I was working in town after Bowen. I, I transferred up to Townsville, and you know especially up in North Queensland, anywhere Brisbane North, you get a lot of those Queensland style construction homes that are. That are all timber, yeah. Construction yep. and that, look from the time of a fire starting and those to them being fully involved is you know it's three four minutes. Um, so by the time you know we get there, generally you're not going to save, uh, you're not going to save a Queensland style home. It's it's more worrying about the houses next door and then making sure that there's no one left uh, inside protecting those exposures. Uh, whereas you now when you get the these newer style block home constructions, you got a lot more chance of. Or pulling the fire up, and you know it's it's why we're so adamant on telling people to close the door. You know, if you've got a fire in a room, shut the door, because it will really contain it in there for quite a long time, and gives a good chance of of making that house making it savable and making the conditions inside more, um, you know, more likely to preserve life than what it might be otherwise. Yeah, Redu- reduce that backdraft like the movie. Yes, yes. Uh, so I've never actually seen a backdraft uh, in real life. It's again like a like I've seen a couple of flashovers. Uh, flashovers uh, kind of like a backdraft, but not really. But basically, I was talking before that when you get that smoke, so basically you have your fire. Let's say a fire starts, uh, you know, quite commonly from a mobile phone charger sitting inside your bed or a laptop mm. sitting on site. Someone's bed generates a lot of heat. The you know the product from your bed. Reaches its auto ignition temperature, and that's what that's what it starts a fire. Or, um, you know, so eventually that smoke goes up to the roof, creates like a, a blanket of smoke across your roof, and it's quite black and acrid. And um, and as that more smoke goes up, the the, the level of smoke comes down on the walls, uh, and it's what's called your overpressure region. And up inside of that, it's quite hot. Like you get sort of seven, eight hundred, nine hundred degree temperatures uh, in there. And the flammability uh, limit of it is the same as what LPG gas is. Yeah, so shit. if you get the right, um, yeah, it's 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 deadly. Um, so if you get the right oxygen air mixture in there, um, eventually it will flash over. So all that. So by the time it sort of comes about halfway down the wall, it's what we call it's what we call a neutral plane. Um, if it gets a good gut full of oxygen and air into it, it'll do what's called flash. So all of that smoke will then turn into fire. Uh, and if you're inside that area when that goes off, um, you know it's 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 potentially or it's deadly. Um, so you need to be on your game, watching watching what the fire conditions are doing. Not only if you're a crew inside, but the crew outside as well. You can tell a lot by the colour of the smoke and what the smoke is doing when you're looking at the fire. If it's puffing or if it's um, sucking back in, or like you can with very rapid colour changes can tell you what that fire is about to do. So. Yeah, I've been I've been inside a fire when it's flash, and it definitely was uh, it was definitely a uh, it was a bit of a pucker moment. Um, but yeah, never seen a backdraft. Yeah, fuck. <laughs> like during during your time as a firefighter, up until you know those first couple of years, was there any time? Obviously, you just spoke about then when you're stuck inside a, a flashover. Is there any other times where it just got you like, holy fuck, that was close, or injured another uh, firefighter or anything like that? No, I can't. Not, not. I've never seen. In, no, I've never been in a situation where another firefighter, true direct firefighting operations, has um, impacted us. Definitely on the rescue side of things. Um, 
like, I, yeah, I go on in my career and really specialise uh, in rescue, uh, particularly vertical. Uh, well, so within, yeah, within, but we're going to admit it a little bit later. Uh, but, yeah, there's definitely been some times where we've been doing rescue training, particularly swift water, um, which has been very, yeah, pretty concerning. Um, but we always, when we go to fires, like, it's a very calculated risk of going in. Like we have a we have a bit of a saying in the fire service, we'll risk our lives a lot in a very calculated manner to save life or property that's savable or save life that's profitable, uh, that's savable, sorry. Um, you know, we won't risk our lives at all to save lives or property that are unsavable. So uh, for as you know, for as dangerous as it looks, there's a lot of risk assessment, there's a lot of pre-planning and training um, that go into those decisions that get made, whether to commit a crew into a fire um, or, or not, yeah. Yeah, right. And uh, j- just a question from myself, like, uh, like a fire engine, like a, a tank, like how much how much water do these do, these, do they carry? Um, so generally I can't speak for the other states, um, but in Queensland uh, our medium appliances, which are the scanners you see rolling on yep. the streets, they carry a 1,500-litre board supply. Uh, and then there's a few appliances around the state, and I was lucky enough to work on the heavies, uh, which are a dual axle uh, truck. They carry an on a three thousand litre onboard water supply, uh, and that probably sounds like a lot, uh, but it's really not. If you have, uh, you know, you put a, a sixty four millimetre diameter hose onto that pump with a uh, with a three six seven branch, set it, you know, four hundred and fifty litres a minute or four hundred sixty litres a minute, um, that you put a couple of those lines out and that very quickly goes. All that all that onboard supply is there to do is to give you initial attack, initial attack into a house fire, uh, especially if someone's reported missing, uh, to get into action straight away. Yeah. So when you arrive at a house fire, like the, the officer will jump out the truck, uh, go and do a size up of the property, uh, look to isolate power, look to uh, locate where the seat of the fire is, uh, and then that officer is then formulating their instant action plan uh, and doing their risk assessment all at the same time of where they want that that first team to commit, uh, you know, very quickly questioning people that are on site, being like, hey, mate, what's happened? What's on fire? Is there anyone inside? Um, you're really trying to gain, gain an appreciation uh, as quickly as possible to get crews in, deployed inside there as quick as possible. Uh, the pump operator, the driver, has got their absolute ass hanging out. So... Not like I was saying, not only are they responsible for driving the truck, you know, driving a you know a ten ton truck there as fast as they, as fast and safely as possible, you know, with lights and sirens and trying to dodge other cars and red lights. And once they arrive there, they're also responsible for trying to see where the hydrants are located as they come in yeah, yeah. into the street. You know, they're looking for overhead hazards and making sure that power lines aren't aren't dropping down. Um, yeah, then they're responsible for getting the truck and engaging the pump and laying out hose lines in preparation for the BA crews to go in. You know, they're also become the the BA entry officer, so they're responsible for the safety of the BA crews going in and booking them out. So we have some sort of a safety mechanism and safety blanket over our BA teams. Um, then they're also responsible for getting water, going and finding that hydrant, sinking the standpipe, which is the, the which is the um, the facility that we use to get water out of the ground and back into the truck. So they got to bowl another two hoses out to towards the hydrant and then go and sink the standpipe, flush the standpipe, couple of, couple of hoses to the standpipe and then get water in the truck and then refill the truck with water and then change it back over. So the first sort of 15, 20 minutes, 
that driver is absolutely under the pump. Um, so that's why I say, initially, you know, that's why I said earlier that the driver probably has one of the biggest responsibilities and toughest jobs when you first rock up to when you first rock up to a fire. You know, and then, and then at the same time you got your two firefighters in the back who are who are doing their BA, uh, you know, and getting all their gear ready, waiting for the waiting for that tasking from the from the OIC. Yeah, right. And what what is the typical loadout for a single firefighter? Obviously, again, you coming from the army, mate. You're used to carrying, you know, decent loads, especially in the infantry. Uh, you know, what's it? What's a typical loadout for a firefighter? Um, so depending again, what sort of so if we, we're talking about a um, you know responding to a fairly standard sort of um, structure fire or any structure fire for that matter. Excuse me. Uh, you obviously have your, your turnout gear, which is all the, the firefighting ensemble and your helmet and your flash hood and your gloves and pants and jacket and all that. Uh, and then your breathing apparatus. Um, so I think all up about that kilo weighs about, I think all up roughly around 20 to 24 kilo mark. Uh, and then once we, you know, then if we start going into high rise procedures or carrying attack and lay packs, you know, you might have to be carrying more hoses. Um, if you want to take specialist equipment, so break and enter equipment, thermal imaging cameras, um, you know, you're starting to get upwards there, 25 to sort of 30 kilos of equipment per person. Um, and if you, you know, if you, if you're going to a fire up on the 10th floor or whatever of an apartment and the lifts aren't working, um, you know, yeah. you're hurting like up there, you're already, you're already cooked. Stair climb, bloody hell. Killer. Yeah. Stair climb. Generally the way <laughs> we work. We do if you know if you get a fire in a, in a high-rise building, we will ride the lift to the floor, two floors below the fire floor. Um, yeah, we got special keys that can that can assist us in doing that. But yeah, if the lifts aren't working, then yeah, and a couple of times we've had that where you, you're humping up 14, 15, 16 floors of stairs with all your gear, and yeah, it's it's hard work. Yeah, fuck. So you spend your time obviously as a, a general firefighter, and then you, as you said before, you move into the search and rescue side of things. Uh, what you have to do some extra training, obviously, a couple of week course, and yeah. So uh, fire and rescue is the lead. So in Queensland, fire and rescue is the lead uh, authority for swift water rescue vertical rescue, confined space and trench rescue. Uh, and we also do urban search and rescue. Uh, so urban search and rescue, if you think about Christchurch 2011, yep. building collapses, tunneling in, finding survivable voids, uh, locating casualties, that's essentially what USA uh, is aimed towards. So swift water is definitely where we get most of our, um, you know, most of our technical rescue work. Uh, and then closely followed by vertical rescue. So I think after about 12 months of being in the job, I went away and did my level two swift water course, which is so basically a level difference between a level one and level two rescue is level one rescue is taught from recruit school and is all land-based rescue. So uh, standing on the edge, wearing a life jacket, throwing someone in a throw bag, which is like a, a, a rope, uh, or reaching, you know, trying to reach them with whatever you can to try and get them back in. Um it's no in-water stuff or any of that. All the in-water stuff is left to level two, which is a much more specific, specialised course because it comes with a huge amount of inherent risk. Um, and again, it's a, it's a big calculated risk of, of how we go about uh, conducting those rescues. So the initial, so the course is two weeks. I think it might be, it used to be two weeks. You go into Brisbane for a week and do, when I did it, you'd go into Brisbane for a week and work with all the vertical rescue instructors. 
learning all the roping and rigging skills and tying knots and mechanical building mechanical advantage systems uh, for hauling and all that sort of stuff. And then you'd go back to your station location, hone those skills down for another week or two, and then we'd actually go up to Tully um, and do a week on the river in Tully, uh, putting learning all the boat skills and then putting all those roping skills into practice and then learning water hydrology and all the different techniques that that we employ you know when we're conducting a swift water rescue uh, up there and then we then on from that we go and do workshops every every 12 months to 18 months to keep those skills down pat as well as that state-based training as well as regional doing your own regional training as well your own regional workshops so um, it's something we can't, it's training we can't get enough of. It's, it's a, it's a job we're getting called to more and more now. Like even just today, for example, uh, we had a guy that was trapped on a truck in the Archer river, uh, up in Cape York, uh, that we almost, that we almost launched for. Luckily we had a helicopter that was already a little bit close and they were able to go and conduct a winch rescue, uh, on him. So we didn't have to deploy any of our own resources. Uh, but yeah, Swiftwater is definitely, um, we're seeing a lot more of that now. Not just, you know, not just Queensland. We're seeing you know, flooding is occurring everywhere. Um, yeah. Here's a bike. Uh, and different organisations, different states uh, do the job, but you know, they all do it essentially the same. Um, and, yeah, it's definitely something I'm quite passionate about. Yeah, right. So you crack on with your rescue side of things from, what, say, 2013 how many rescues are you doing? It, it, like, and how does it work? Do you get posted to a rescue unit, or are you just uh, operating as a normal firefighter? And if you get called out, type thing. Yeah. So um, Brisbane, uh, essentially, so everywhere outside of Brisbane, um, so your major centres have designated rescue stations. So for Townsville, for example, our main station there was our rescue station. So we'd run a crew. We'd run six firefighters on shift at any one time, and we'd have two appliances running out the door. Uh, one was a, was a first response alpha appliance that would have four firefighters on there. Uh, and generally, most of those firefighters are all level two uh, rescue operators. And then you'd also have the rescue truck, which again would have generally um, a rescue qualified firefighter on there as well. So predominantly, we're still there to respond to alarms, car accidents, house fires, hazmat jobs, community education, all those sort of normal things a firefighter would do. However, if there is a call for um, a rescue job, we would then re-roll and roll out the door, go and grab a different vehicle uh, and respond to those jobs. And that could be anything from, you know, a job in town where you can just take the truck and the rescue appliance and go and conduct off that. Or we might be jumping in, you know, one of the dual cab utes with a specialised trailer and flying down the road to Bowen. Or uh, I remember one time uh, we got responded all the way down to a little town called Opleton, which is just south of Emerald, I think it is. Uh, to a guy who had fallen down a mine shaft down there, so you know, we're driving. It was a two day trip. It was a two day trip to get there. The guy was deceased. It was a, it was a recovery, you know. So we yeah, so we could respond anyway. You know, we might even get in a helicopter and responding to a job, or done in the raw flying doctor plane, um, and just being very autonomous. And in any way we had to get to a job, we just we sort of figure it out in the fly. We got you know relationships in place with all those other organisations. So, you know, we sort of pre-planned a lot of this stuff. But, yeah, it was very, very dynamic sort of work environment. Yeah. And, like, what I want to ask, you know, I've had I had a lot of cops on recently and, you know, for you first responders, it can get quite gruesome, you know, responding to jobs, car crashes, fires, uh, et cetera, rescues, deceased, as you said, that bloke was dead for two days before you even got there. You know, how much of, you know, that, that type of stuff do you see 
Um, yeah, fair bit. Um, you know, yeah, we do. So within the vertical rescue side of things, like actually conducting a, a vertical rescue for someone who's alive is pretty rare these days. Like there's a lot of um, aviation assets these days, a lot of helicopter rescue organisations out there, um, you know, that are quite appropriately tasked to go and retrieve those people, um, you know, who are still alive. Uh, a lot of those organisations, a lot of those heli- rescue helicopters won't go and uh, recover deceased bodies because it just costs so much money. So uh, a lot of the vertical, uh, a lot of the vertical rescue environment we go to would be for a lot of um, recoveries of people who had suicided uh, or got themselves into trouble. You know, like being washed away somewhere and, and washed up, you know, washed up down a, a canyon or or something. So yes, yeah, so a lot of the work we do, especially in vertical rescue, is a lot of recovery work. Uh, and like you say, a lot of the, a lot of work. On the highway, um, you know, major, you know, very high speed impact is always going to, you know, present a lot of injury, death, gore, and that sort of stuff. So you're definitely exposed to it. Um, you know, it's not, a, and I think what people people get a lot very focused around, you know, what's it like to see someone who's, you know, high, you know, who's all messed up or dead, or uh, you know, it's it definitely takes a toll on you. I think what's worse is arriving to those situations and seeing the reaction of family that are there. Yeah. Um, seeing the reaction of, you know, the bystanders were the first ones to come across it and trying to talk. Now, for us, we're half, we, we know what we're coming, we know what we're coming to, so we can we can mentally prepare for it to a degree, whereas those people, they're the first ones to come across it. It's their family members. So, you know, I remember a job, uh, it was a very successful job um, a number of years ago where we were already in an alarm call in one of the main streets in Townsville, uh, and we had another fire truck coming to back us up. Um, and so Firecom had asked for permission to re-divert that truck to a priority job just around the corner from where we were. And without even waiting for an answer, they just re-diverted them to the call was to uh, assist QAS, CPR in progress for a two-year-old post-drowning. And I remember I was driving the truck this day and the officer was inside with the guys trying to find this alarm and I jumped. And we all had kids um, by this stage. And I still, I still get choked up um, reminiscing about this story. So I jumped the radio. I said to, I said to the boss, I said, mate, there's a, there's a kid drowning in the apartments at Solaris just around the corner. CPR's in progress. And and the guys reckon they ran down that hallway, this room. They reckon they kicked the door in SWAT style. And and that's the time there was no fire or smoke inside. Ran back down the truck. And and um, I said before, you know, we had this big, heavy dual axle uh, fire truck, and it was a great bit of gear. Unfortunately, it retired last year. And I reckon I've never, in all my years of being the cavalry and working overseas and going bush and battle runs, I've never driven a truck as hard or as fast to work the brakes as hard as I worked the truck that day. Because I had a two, my son was two year old at the time. Yeah, absolutely flogged this truck in the corner. And um, I look back on the word back of when we departed that job when we arrived and it was it was less than a minute <laughs> and, um, Shit. and like it wasn't and don't get me wrong the hotel was close um you know but still yeah we absolutely came the truck that day and yeah sure enough we got inside and here's the dad you know over his son and, and the mum mum's in there and been absolutely hysterical you know because her two-year-old son's there and dad's dad's doing um dad's doing compressions and um, we're like, mate, you need to get off. Like, we need to, we need to take over. We, the ambos weren't there yet, so we grabbed the defib, we grabbed the grabbed the oxyviver, and and um, so we started doing compressions. And my boss, my OIC in the truck, was actually prior to being in the fire service, 
he was a rescue crewman on the rescue helicopter in Townsville. So he was really up on his medical skills. And prior to that, he was an engineer in the army and, and, uh, you know, really good guy, really well, really, really good switched on guy. And, uh, so yeah, we took over, took over doing CPR and yeah, within, oh, it must look, it, it really didn't seem that long. Like I, I think, I don't think Corey had even, we hadn't even rotated, normally we rotate through doing compressions. And I think Corey, uh, I don't think we even rotated any of this kid regained consciousness, popped up all this water and, and, um, and, um, I remember, yeah, I'll, I'll never forget him. You coughing up the water and the sound, this absolute relief. And, um, and the dad just, just sitting back and, you know, crying. And, um, sorry, mate. No, you're all right, mate. You're all right. <clears throat> and, um, you know, me sitting back with him and being like, it's all right, mate. He's, he's good. He's good. And, and, yeah, and then me starting to tear up and all the boys starting to tear up and, and uh, and it was uh, so. Look, we went in the uh, and that was right at the end of our day shift, and so I didn't really get time to decompress from that. And we sort of got back to station and all went home. And and um, we, it was our second day shift, so we sort of we had that next day to process. And we came in on the night shift, and I think I think Corey had had um, liaised the family, so we went up to the hospital that night and uh, and saw the family. And um, yeah, no brain damage to this kid, or you know, and because the dad had just been straight on that CPR straight away, like grabbed him at the pool, and and uh, you know, we, we got to see the CCTV footage of it, and you know, it's it, it's heartbreaking, and uh, but you know, but you know, it's, it's probably one of the only, I think it's the only job where I've ever done CPR. We've actually got someone back, and yeah, he's yeah, he live and kicking, and and yeah, um, right. to this day, that's uh, awesome. Yeah, that, uh, yeah, so like. Yeah, probably the most emotional job that I can that I that I can recall. Yeah, you know, that I'll that I'll recall, but had the best outcome. You know, like mm. it was just this this emotion, like like yeah, dealing with families and people's raw emotion. I think it yeah is worse is worse than actually having to go and scrape. You know, yeah, like a bedtime. You know, go and pick up. Yeah, dead or especially when kids um, are involved. Dealing with that emotion. Oh, yeah, yeah, hundred yeah, percent. Yeah, when kids are involved, it's. It's um yeah it's terrible it's 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 absolutely rubbish and it's definitely the downside of the job like we do talk a lot of yeah we there's a lot of banter between the cops and the ambos and the fires you know you bloody fires just come in you go home and go to bed and you know you go back to station go to bed and watch your movies and recliners but you know when it's on it's on you know and it doesn't and that's not just restricted to us that's you know the cops are there going through the same thing the ambos are going through the same thing mm. like it's it's hard case um and it does it, it gets to you i was listening to your podcast last week with um with the guy from police rescue yeah matt you're um, Brian. and it does mate yeah yeah it does mate it gets to you and yeah over uh, and it does it slowly creeps up and yeah you know there's the old there's the old bucket analogy of of um you know like you everyone's bucket sit under a tap and that tap's dripping away, but no one knows how big that bucket is. Mm. And eventually that bucket overflows and yeah, I went through all that, took 12 months off work with, you know, diagnosed with PTSD and anxiety and depression and all that stuff that goes with it. And, um, but you know, uh, so it definitely does get to you. So it is something you need to be, you know, you need to be cognizant of and be aware of. And, and um, you know, we've got all these hashtags out there of, you know, hashtag it ain't weak to speak and are you okay day and all that. And um, that's great. But, you know, it's more of a personal thing. Like everyone's got a different way of dealing with it. I like talking to my mates about it that were there. Like I don't really like talking to people that that weren't there uh, and recalling that detail with them. But I think it's very, very important to acknowledge that and go and seek help and, you know, and not just be the tough guy. Like I think we, I think we are getting better at it. We're definitely getting better. I think Queensland Fire Service particularly 
is really good with the way that they support their workers in, in trauma and and whatnot. Uh, and yeah, you know, I've made a I've made a you know essentially a, a full recovery and back at work, fully operational again, and and uh, you know ready to ready to fly at the door and, and keep doing it for you know probably another twenty years. Yeah, yeah, fuck yeah, mate. As you said, I guess for you guys, front you know your first frontline. Um, f- Fuck, what are, what are you called? Fucking first responders. I'm getting first there, mate. Yeah, first, <laughs> far out, man. I'm struggling. First responders, you know, you, you see all that gore and stuff, but it's, it's not even seeing the dead bodies and that. It's it's seeing the emotional effects of, you know, the people around it and the people involved. And, you know, for that child, you know, far out, he pulls through eventually. But you know, it, I could only imagine, you know, when my, my kids get sick, my daughter's been crook for the last yeah. couple of days, mate, with uh, gastroenteritis, and mate, it's just painful to see her in that in that pain. Sometimes, you know, like, and it's that emotional factor of seeing that yeah. type of stuff, which uh, takes its effect. But, uh, mate, so in 2018, you do your promotional courses and then get promoted to a station officer, so officer in charge, 2018, big dog. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that was um, that was a good, uh, you know, it was, it was quite a rewarding part of my career. It's a, it's a long road to get there. Uh, there's a lot of assignments, a lot of assessments, a lot of training, a lot of, you know, tactical decision sort of exercises, learning tactics of fire, how to deploy fire crews properly. You know, and, and my study never ended. So your first, like I said before, your first three years of your career do mandatory study to get to first class firefighter from there you don't you can just be you can be a first class firefighter sit in the back of the truck drive the truck for the rest of your career and and uh you know all care and no responsibility essentially uh and plenty of people do that and hats off to them fantastic fantastic career uh from there though if you want to continue your study you can go on to become a senior firefighter which is the next step up so you can then act as a senior fiery you can act up as the oic in the absence of a station officer and you're qualified up to a two-pump response to a structure fire or a hazmat incident. And then if the, you know, but then in saying that too, um, you know, if you if the officer's there, you're just essentially the, you're the two I see at a station. Uh, and again, it's a great role. I love being a senior fiery. It's again, it's it's just a little bit more care and and uh, you know a little bit more responsibility. And then you know if you want to go on again to your station officer exams, it's a it's a two-year program that you enrol in. And again, go away, do some more books, do some more training, just keep developing on what you've already got. And it all culminates in a, I think it was a four-week course when I went down, four-week assessment period where you go down with guys and girls from across the state and they just, they cane you. They put you through every sort of scenario imaginable. And you know, your final scenario is at a big entertainment centre with a decent-sized fire, a simulated decent-sized fire with a heap of people evacuating and, you know, you have to go through the whole process of arriving, doing your own occupied questioning, locating the fire, deploying your crews. And, you know, when you get to this sort of a stage fire, we're talking big stadiums. Think of a football stadium yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or a music arena. So, you know, you're, you're well away from your – you're well removed from where your fire truck is and you're completely relying upon using your radios to task your crews where you need to go. And it can't be war and peace. And this is where – my training in cavalry of utilising the radio uh, and getting short, sharp messages really came into play and and uh, and helped me a lot. Like, so you've got to be able to task your crews from the fire truck because they wait there while you go and do your do your size up, and then you need to be able to communicate via you know, the radio to get them not only into where you are, but also what equipment you need because so uh, because you're not at the fire truck, you're not using the, the hose off there because you're 100, 200 metres from 
from the fire truck and you need them to hook into pillar hydrants that are inside and you need special equipment like brake and equipment, thermal imaging cameras and all that sort of stuff. So you not only need to communicate where to go, but you need to communicate what to bring. And then once they get there, you then need to communicate, right out, what I need to do is this. We've got this person missing. We've got this, we've got that. So then you then need to communicate all that back to Firecom as well because your inspectors need to know all that information if they're coming on site for you know for a larger scale uh, incident to start doing their incident appreciation um, before they get there as well. So, yeah, it's, it's quite a – I really enjoyed it. I actually really – some people talk about the officer experience with a bit of negativity. I, I found the opposite. I really, really enjoyed that course. And it's not unrealistic training. I responded to while I was going through that process. I was on shift one night, and I was acting up as a. I was acting up as the OIC this night, and we got turned out literally in the middle of the night to. This is just post the Townsville floods. Turned out to a structure fire at the accommodation at the university uh, in town. Multiple triple zero calls. There was two hundred and ten. I remember. I remember there was two hundred and ten people evacuating, and there was six people reported missing. Oh, which is which is essentially you know the sort of scenario given for these officer assessments and senior firefighter assessment. You know, big, big buildings, smallish fire compared to what the size of the building is, with a heap of people evacuating and a lot of people reported missing. So you know, out of that, you've got to drill down on where the fire is, where these people are seen, and whatnot. And I remember thinking at the time, like this is just like a buddy, this is just like an assessment. Like, is this for real? I thought am I dreaming? And yeah, and for sure enough, yeah, arriving this job, fire over fire over three separate floors, you know, and being the senior fiery, uh, the first one there, and you know, having a having a very I was very fortunate to have a very very experienced crew uh, with me on that first arriving appliance, and I also had I knew I had another four trucks, you know, as I called I called for a second alarm straight away, and that's a that's a way of calling for more trucks quickly, and the other firefighters that are listening will know what a second alarm is. But it means a second alarm essentially means you get you're calling for another four trucks immediately without having um, without having to say it. So I knew that the next closest station had a very senior station officer on board. So I was I was confident enough in my own skills to be able to do the initial size up and initial deployment of crews, and then knowing I had some really experienced guys coming to back me up from every station uh, in Townsville. Well, and I think on that night we had about 13, 13 BA teams uh, deployed across five separate floors. We located everyone, extinguished the fire, and yeah, it was really rewarding. It's, it's one of the it's one of the structure fires that really sticks out for me as being quite a rewarding one, uh, and yeah, utilizing that training they give you to to combat that combat incident. Yeah, right. So far, yeah, that's yeah, that's that's cool, mate. And obviously, you know, um, I guess the reference uh, you're the John Travolta of uh, Ladder Forty Nine. Captain of the house, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> mate. Just, <laughs> mate. Swinging back to your PTSD now, mate. Just quickly run us through. You know, how did you go? How did you get through it? Um, I probably saw that it was coming for a while, but denied it in my own head. Uh, I said, "Nah, yes, you know, like you'll be fine. Just keep cracking on." And yeah, so I've been I'd been coming for a while. I had a few bad jobs. I had a really bad run of particularly. Uh, traumatic jobs like one of them like we did this one day we'd had um, a fatality with a cutout in the morning rolling straight into a um, assist QAS for a post hanging uh, where we had to we were, again first ones there had to cut this guy down who'd, who'd hung himself on a on a on a block and ch- uh, block and tackle setup and again with family and stuff there and then rolling back to station and getting turned out to confirm structure fire person reported missing like it was just a ridiculous day 
And yeah, probably looking back, that's probably where it, it sort of first started kicking in to getting to the point where we had a particularly nasty um, car accident one night north of Townsville where we'd been um, at a we'd been at a separate fatality where a, a person had gone into a truck and was killed instantly and having to cut that person out. And I remember being at jobs and especially this one too, and just thinking, you know, I really don't want to cut another person out of a car. I'm sick of this. The the smells, the you know, like the it's very hard to explain to someone, but the the smell of of, of blood and and fuel and oil and um, feces, you know, because once you die, you, you lose your bowels, and just really not wanting to do it, but definitely not holding back from it. You know, like I never never hold back from doing a job and making the guys do something I wouldn't do myself. And I remember that night going, nah, this is there's something not right here. Like I need to, I probably need to go and talk to someone. Anyway, so we cut this guy out of the car, we put him in the body bag, helped load him into the coroner's van, and we it turned out back to station. Obviously, the highway's shut because it's such a serious incident. Just as we got back to station, the bells had dropped again for our rescue appliance to respond back to the original location, two kilometers north, to a second fatality. And you can tell in the you can tell in the communication operator's voice when something's quite serious. In the sort of information was just coming through. So what had happened is someone who was high on um, drugs and alcohol was flying down the highway, coming south back towards all this traffic that was banked up uh, still from the original uh, job. And they were doing, this person was doing about 160 kilometres an hour, I believe. And so you can imagine how when you, so, and when you bank, when you, when you pulled up those jobs as a, as a, someone who's driving home, you know, you're sitting in your car, you haven't got your seatbelt on, you're standing outside your vehicle, uh, you know, just waiting, stretching your legs, waiting for the road to open. And this person had hit the back of the of this of this pile up of traffic. In a, it was a Land Cruiser Ute with a big bull bar and, and stuff on it, and pushed the car right off the side. And it was an absolute mess. It had killed the person inside that vehicle instantly and ejected them from the vehicle quite some distance. Bred a lot of uh, there was a lot of uh, kids stuff in the car, car seats, that sort of stuff. And then so that vehicle speared off into the table drain. The Land Cruiser then gone forward over the top of the guy in front of that vehicle who was standing outside of his vehicle. Uh, hit him at you know probably about a hundred kilometres an hour by this stage. Ah. Land Cruiser ended up down in the uh, down in the ditch, upside down. And there was so the guy was well known to police. And so by the time we arrived back there, they had him in handcuffs, and the scene was just uh, was was pretty bad. Uh, and so we arrived, we started doing, we were doing CPR uh, on the gentleman who was in the car in in front. I don't want to go into too much detail out of respect for the families of people who might be listening, but it was a particularly traumatic um, attempt at CPR. The doc, I cannot talk highly enough of the paramedics and the doctors that were there. They flew the, they flew the couple of doctors in from towns on the rescue helicopter. You know, literally, you know, like you see on the, on the news, you know, like it lands on the highway and and so they're in there. They're putting blood in. They're putting they're putting blood into this gentleman. Uh, you know, they're doing ultrasounds to try. You know, they're doing absolutely everything they can for this for this guy before before eventually calling it. And it was only a young guy. And I just remember thinking, what a waste. And then and then the anger, the anger really starting to set in when I got back in the truck. And yeah, you know, don't be wrong. Like we've been we've been going at it all night this night, so we're tired. And and then yeah, we're getting back in the truck and going back to station. And you know, walking to this stage, you know, the sort of adrenaline's kicked you know, come down a bit. We've had a quick on-site debrief. And walking back to the truck and seeing bags of ice, uh, you know, ice the drug scattered all over the road, 
leading to where this vehicle was upside down that caused the accident. And then hearing from bystanders as well, you know, that oh, when he when he crawled out of the car, he was going to stash and drugs in the bush. And the policeman had found all that and, and whatnot. And there, the particular anger that was starting to set in then. And yeah, then thinking, man, I'm, yep, I really need to go. This isn't right. Like, this is probably the, the signs they talk about. And, um, and a couple of days later, my nan, my nan passed away in the Sunshine Coast. So I was, as upsetting as that was, it was a good excuse to get away from work and go and decompress for a couple of weeks on the Sunshine Coast, put a, try and put this behind me, which I didn't do very well. <laughs> yeah. So then came back to work, thought I'd thought I'd uh, dealt with it all right. And the very first shift back at work, we got responded to a, um, a suicide off, off an apartment that's around the corner from the station. Again, been the first ones there. Uh, to this this person who had jumped off uh, jumped off the balcony and suicided and and again an absolute mess and again his that person's girlfriend downstairs and the emotion and some fairly what I would say poor decisions um, being made by a couple of people that were on site that were medical professionals in asterisks um, of you know starting CPR on this guy who was clearly clearly deceased uh, and me again and the anger immediately kicking in containing don't get me wrong not not outwardly angry but inside just going why are we doing this why are we doing cpr and this guy is clearly deceased and and yeah i went home that night and just just collapsed into a bit of a heap and and was quite emotional and uh so that was that was a lead into uh to me going off work then and yeah going starting to go through the process of um of yeah starting to deal with the with the mental health side of things and yeah. the treatment for ptsd and Really following it too, like paying paying attention to it, not just making lip service of it, like doing absolutely everything I could. I didn't want that to be the end of me. Like I was very, I was very worried about that being the end of my career. And yeah, and I do remember, like for a long time, I couldn't, I could not drive past any scene I'd been to where there'd been, you know, if I, I couldn't for the initial stage, I couldn't even drive past a roadside, you know, where people put the crosses on the side of the road. I couldn't even drive past one of those roadside memorials without hallucinating that I was smelling those same smells you get a fatal car accident um and starting to get the you know getting all the flashbacks and then becoming very emotional and you know even at one point they had to pull over and you know just just absolutely bore my eyes out and just going how am i going to recover from this and you know and eventually you know you just go you go through the processes and you you, you listen and you do what they say and you do you start you start trying to get through it you start getting through it and and um you know to the point now where yeah i'm back at work really Ready to respond to whatever comes in. Happily driving up in the highway past these places and incident sites I've been to, and yeah, it's it, like I said before, the the support mechanisms that are in place with with Queensland Fireman Services are fantastic. I can't. Yeah, I, I was just people. about to say that. I was just about to say how was the response from uh, Queensland Fire and Rescue? Yeah, no, very good. So yeah, I, probably initially I thought it wasn't that great, but I think I was still um, suffering a fair bit of um, you know anger and emotion and stuff then, and. There was one particular comment made by one of my managers that that was inappropriate and did piss me off, and and I did react to that. You know, well, I'd probably say it was appropriate. I don't regret it. But then going moving forward from there, you know, quite good. It gets flicked over to it gets it gets flicked over to work cover and work cover. I could not. Yeah, I honestly couldn't. I know a lot of people say a lot of bad things about them, but a lot of people say a lot of bad things about DVA as well. But I've never had a bad experience with either of them obviously dva takes quite a lot of you know he's, he's very backlogged and yeah and whatnot but i've never had a bad experience with either of them and yeah i was off work for 12 months my pain never dropped uh i got all the support i needed my family got any support they needed i wasn't out of pocket for anything and yeah i was able to really really use that time to um 
to process everything I've been through. Initially started off doing cognitive processing therapy, I think it is, which didn't work for me. And then a really good friend of mine who who lives in southeast southwest Queensland was suffering the same thing. He'd been he'd been in the military and police and and he talked about EMDR. And when I first heard about it, I thought, oh, it sounds, you know, that sounds like rubbish. It sounds like it's not something that is really up my alley. And but then I thought, you know what, this ain't working, so I've got to try it. And then the first session, I was like, holy moly, like this is like a, this is unlocking some some pretty deep stuff here. And then yeah, going through that for a good six eight months. And w- um, what is EMDR? I'm not something for no. the, the top of my head. Google, um, I'll yeah, yeah, Google it up. Um, but essentially, all the psych would do is um, she just like we talk a bit about incidents and you know what was bad and this and that and. And she, then she just start waving a pen in front of your eyes. All you got to do is follow the pen with your eyes. And she might only do it for 20, 30 seconds uh, or maybe a little bit longer. But whatever it is that, that, that's working in there, uh, it starts unlocking a lot of other stuff and you know, stuff hasn't come out for a long. You know, I was diagnosed with complex PTSD, which is just a fancy way of saying, you know, you just dealt with a lot of shit over a long period of time that you haven't dealt with and you keep falling the other way and, and um, you know, you're not dealing with it. So all this stuff comes out and, you come out of some sessions and you just feel like you're absolutely drained, like you're mentally fatigued and, and um, you know, it takes you a good 24 hours to get over it, but it's unlocking it. And it's it's definitely emotional and hard work, but I'd say for anyone out there that's that's going through it or definitely looks seriously at that because it works very well for me. I know it's worked very well for a lot of other you know, military and first responders in, in dealing with their trauma and, and PTSD. Yeah, so just... Uh, quickly, EMDRI movement desensitization and reprocessing is a psychotherapy treatment that was originally designed to alleviate the distress associated with. Sorry, I've got to click the link. <laughs> um, alleviate the distress associated with traumatic uh, memories. You're yeah, right, interesting. Mm. It's it sounds very new age and touchy feely and stuff, which is why initially I was like, oh, no, I'm tough, I can deal with this and blah, blah, blah. and then uh, yeah, when I started doing, it, I'm like, wow, this uh, this is amazing, and uh, I credit that highly to my recovery. And yeah, like I say, I was saying before, like I was very concerned about was this the end of my career? Like I'd worked very hard to get to where I was. Uh, you know, I was very proud of the achievements I'd made, and you know, I was I'd like to think I'd built myself a good reputation. I've been professional and, and been good at what I do. And then I was like, well, I can't just have this snatched from underneath me now when I'm really just starting to cut my teeth. And so anyway, just just sunk myself wholly into it and um yeah, come out the side of it, come out the other side of it better. I'm not saying it works for everyone and um everyone's got their own story and own journey, but uh for me that definitely worked incredibly well. No, mate, that's awesome. That's awesome to hear that obviously, you know, you you had the effects of uh, PTSD and come out the other side because, as you know, mate, especially coming from the mill, mate, we've lost a, you know, I think there was a bloke uh, last week that uh, pulled the pin and uh, obviously always too often and I'm sure there's yeah. uh, firefighters out there doing the yep. exact same thing. So, uh, mate, that's good. it's good to hear. Definitely. Now, mate, uh, yeah. we're coming up to uh, two hours of chatting. You've uh, you've just you given us you- a... You said the other day when we had the chat, you said, oh, I'll get it out of you. We'll chat for over two hours. I'm like, no way. I can't yeah. talk for that long. Yeah, mate. Yeah, mate. There you go. You got it out of you. Now, you know, a couple of thousand people are going to be, uh, they're going to know all about your story, which is a good thing. But, mate, you've had a stellar career, obviously, serving in the infantry, the best core out there. Then you, you know, <laughs> change your hair color, 
to purple and you become you went to Cav. You busted your knee a couple of times and then, you know, eventually you moved on to the fire and rescue side of things and to the current day you're still, you know, working as a firefighter, which is absolutely unbelievable. Again, like I, I love first responders just because you guys are the ones that just keep this world, you know, moving uh, in a way. Yeah, mate, it's, it's incredible. You, what, you, what you've done is incredible. So, mate, just uh, before we uh, cut away, just got a couple of final questions. And I'm sure if you've listened to the podcast, you've heard the, the questions that I ask. Mate, first question, you know, what advice can you give to people? Just to keep on keeping on, complete those goals and, you know, get whatever they want. You know, for you, you, you start off as a, as a dumb grunt, <laughs> moved your way up to a, you know, a station officer in the fire and rescue. Yeah, um, never stop learning. Never stop pushing yourself to gain more information. You know, it's it's a bit of a catchphrase, but knowledge really is power. You know, and that doesn't. You know, you. I've never been. You know, I'm doing some study at university at the moment. You know, through external university, uh, but I've never attended a university at a young age. You know, I, you know, you went to the old school of infantry. You know, my cutting ground as a young guy was going to school of infantry, um, but never lost the urge to want to learn more like ask questions don't sit back and assume you know everything if you think you know everything ask anyway because the way you do it someone else might have a different way of doing it that's just as good or better like uh you know i sit in the i sit in the vertical i'm a vertical instructor for for queensland fire and rescue now um and a lot of people look up the vertical instructors or the swift water instructors that you know they're the they're the almanac of information but realistically we're just a bunch of people who just have probably just a little bit more of a passion than than the rest of them. We're still fighting for information. We want to know it. Like, go and read. If you're passionate about something, go and do it. Learn about it. If you're stuck for an idea of, you know, if you're stuck in life, you know, draw back on what your passions are. You know, if you, you know, find a job you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Yeah. No, mate, you're exactly right. Exactly right. Second question, mate. What is the plans for the future? Jump the rank still? Get up a little uh, bit higher? Move back to Brisbane. Yeah, firefighter back in the residential sure. side. I think yeah, climbing eventually. I think may I take the next step eventually is on the cards. I'm still young. I'm only 38, Oof, uh, so mate. I've still got. You know, You're getting old, mate. You're getting old. <laughs> <laughs> nah, mate. Nah, refuse to uh, refuse to believe that. Twenty. Uh, yeah, I've still got probably a good five to ten years of of rescue left in me. I'd, I'd like to think once you once you start going up from station officer, you got to hang up your rescue belt. And you know, I've still got I've still got some life left in me, and I've still got some I've still got some life left in these bones to keep contributing to to the rescue side of things. And as much as I'm passionate about rescue, I'm as passionate as as you know, getting fire trucks out the door and and responding to those structure fires. And I'm as equally as passionate about training people as well. So I'm currently up working up on Thursday Island as the as a station officer in OIC up here. I'll probably uh, I'll probably pull out of here midway through next year and and go back to Townsville and get behind. I, I very much enjoy being a regional firefighter. You get I think you get a bit more exposure more to stuff. Been saying that too, you know, like they get more jobs down south as well. So uh, I'm pretty lucky in my career. I'm, I'm very specialised uh, in what I do now. So, so yeah, I'll probably do another another 18 months up here. I wouldn't mind getting a bit of travel in as well. I'd like to see America and Mexico and South America, so I'll try and fit that in there somewhere. Yeah, right. Uh, and then probably up back in Townsville towards the later half of next year and get back to, to normal firefighting. As much as I love it up here, I do love it up here in Thursday. Oh, I'm, the only, I'm the only officer 
uh, permanent officer up here, so I'm very autonomous, and the fishing up here is fantastic. It suits my lifestyle, but you know, I will at some point I will need to go back to, to doing on shift firefighting and, and yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, mate, third question: You come from the first battalion, the second battalion, sorry, and I know you blokes are a bit weird up there. It, you know, <laughs> you've got some dirty obsessions. Yeah, you got some dirty obsessions. <laughs> uh, mate, give us a, a guilty obsession or something that people don't know about you. Again, mate, you're from 2 area. You probably sniff chicks' feet or something. Well, <laughs> not really. It's not my thing. My probably my guilty my guilty obsession. And this is disgusting. I'm going to admit this on a bloody podcast. <laughs> is I bloody love at first sight. Oh, do yeah. <laughs> yeah right. I'm a dick. I hate bloody reality TV, but for some reason that show just drags me back every single time. Oh shit, that's disgusting. You should be fired. <laughs> Don't look at me, guys. <laughs> are, you, are you married or anything? Your wife or anything? Uh, uh, no, no, not married. Well, there you go. Couple. Married at first Three sight. Kids. Married at first Three sight, kids. mate. Yeah, yeah, three. I've got a girlfriend. Uh, yeah, three kids. Um, yeah, not married. Oh, well, fuck. I was about to sign you up for married for first sight then. <laughs> not, a, not a hope in the world. As I love watching the drama. I wouldn't be on that thing for bloody. You couldn't pay me enough to go on that show. <laughs> yeah, mate. Uh, again, it's been absolutely an absolute pleasure having you on. Uh, you know, we've been chatting for a, for a couple of months now. Obviously, just trying yeah. to work out the time to get on, and you know, with yep. your your shitty ADSL internet that you've got at the station, <laughs> made things a little bit harder. But uh, yeah, mate, you've had an absolute stellar career, mate. You've done you've done your country proud, both as a you know as as uh, within the military, and then serving the community now as a as a fire and rescue, which is just you know it's it's amazing, mate. It's it's yeah. it's great to hear. It's great to hear these success success stories as well. Absolutely killed it. Yeah, thanks very much, and thanks for your kind words. And and uh, yeah, I suppose you know you you look back and you don't yeah you know, as an individual you don't really think much of it. And yeah, you know, then you do tell your story. You know, over, over the years you tell your story and you think, bloody hell, there is a there is a fair bit in this. And and um, yeah, it ain't over yet. Next chapter's next chapter's only just beginning. So yeah, um, yeah, mate. And it's crazy that and obviously we probably brush shoulders in our younger days as uh, delinquents cruising the streets of Malkavat and. All those places, oh, and no. then and then obviously again down in Pucker when I've let a fire extinguisher off and destroyed the whole place. <laughs> yeah, that's actually really cool. <laughs> Absolutely crazy that night, far out. Shout out to uh, Luke McPhail and Gary Lowe because they were both involved with me. <laughs> Maybe it got that crazy. I told this story. I told it to a few boys the other week. We destroyed this fucking common room of the fire extinguisher. Let it off. It's just going nuts. Well, obviously all the doors started opening and the fire alarms were going off and all you blokes come running downstairs to muster up outside. We took our shoes off and we're putting footprints all over the walls and on the roof. Yep. <laughs> so the MP- yep. <laughs> <laughs> the MPs come in, yeah. I'm pretty sure I was pretty pissed that night too. Yeah, I was thumped. I was thumped that night. I think I tipped over a couple of guns as well. <laughs> good times, mate. Good times. Anyway, mate, uh, again, thanks for uh, giving me your time and uh, we'll stay in contact. Love to catch up for a beer or, or a punch on it, uh, Mount Cravat. Yeah, let's uh, let's get in the Mansfield Tavern. That's always good for a beer and a punch on. <laughs> yeah. That's always, mate. Cheers. All right. Actually, um, just before we cut there, let's uh, – mate, if people want to reach out to you, 
they can find you on uh, socials? Yeah, I've got uh, just uh, Instagram. I've just got a bit, just a public profile there. It's not really much to do with anything except for fishing and hunting and a little bit of firefighter stuff in there. It's just appetite for the wild. Yeah, nice. And, uh, yeah, I've got, got a private one as well. But that's just for my kids and, and yeah, whatnot. Yeah. So yeah. stuff nice to see. Yeah, LinkedIn? No. No, no, just just Instagram, nah. just fishing, hunting, and a bit of fires. Just, yeah, just – Fish Bloody firefighters, mate, just living the life. <laughs> Absolutely, mate. Absolutely. <laughs> no, awesome, mate. No, awesome, mate. Again, uh, yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll stay in contact. No problems. Cheers, mate. Wait, wait, wait. Now, quickly, just before you go, I want to tell you about Three Zeros Coffee. Now, as you know, I like my coffee how I like my men, long and black. <laughs> However... Lately, I've moved into the cold brews. I'm loving it, obviously, because the weather here in Australia at the moment is quite hot. So what I've been doing is using the seasoned campaigner pour-over filter bags, literally rip open the packet, put the filter bag over my coffee mug, a few ice cubes, pour in some hot water, let it cool down, add a sugar or two just to make it sweet, and I fucking love them. Honestly, you get the kick that you need out of the caffeine, and the taste is great. So if you want to get yourself a supply of coffee, head over to 30scoffee.com.au. From there, you can choose whatever you want. You've got the beans, you've got the pour-over filter bags, got some merchandise. And just to let you know that a percentage of their sales is forwarded to organizations that support first responders. So while you're getting your coffee, you're doing a good deed by getting some of this money to the first responders and where it needs to go. While you're there, don't forget to use the discount code 3ZLIMITS. Now look in our buyer, you see that discount code, use it. Get your discounts. So again, jump onto 30scoffee.com.au and grab yourself a supply.